You're listening to Threshold Radio with Sam Maranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp. Demons shadow people. Forbidden archaeology. Haunted locations. Haunted 24-7. You can argue about Roswell all you want to, but something happened today. We're just collecting the data. Is we don't need to debate out there. Is it government? Is it government? We're dealing with something genuine. This isn't make-believe. Thresholds into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Daniel Stockin. We're going to be talking to him about the fluoride cover-up. Also, Michael Clean and much more. You're not going to want to miss today's show. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Toilet Realms. With us right now is Daniel Stockin from the Lily Southerner Inc., which uh, one of their main purposes is the fluoride cover up or conspiracy, however you want to put it. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm fine, thank you. Do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and your history and uh, just go from there? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm a public health professional more than, I guess, 23 or so, maybe 24 years. Um, I've been involved in the sort of environmental health and public health interface where those two disciplines um, meet together. My background is in working with um, hazardous materials and and, um, biologic agents, radioactive materials, that kind of thing, and also in toxic assessment. And um, I've been working in this for quite a long time um, on the fluoride issue, I should say, sort of because I got pulled into it kind of sideways. Um, This wasn't something I had sort of charted on my career path, but um, it sort of happened that as this thing evolved, we had started up a public health training firm, the Lilly Center, um, outside of Nashville back around almost eight years ago now. And um, my boss came to me, and she had this rash on her arm that the doctors couldn't get rid of. And she had seen these signs along the side of the road out in the Nashville area there where it says approved fluoridated drinking water. And she's a very intuitive person by nature, and so she came to me and she said, is it possible that this fluoride water that I'm drinking and making tea with and, and showering showering in, could it be causing the skin rash that the doctors can't get rid of? So I did what I've done hundreds of times in my career. I just kind of backed away from a chemical and, and looked at how it is metabolized or processed in your body and what the target organs are. In other words, where does it wind up depositing in your body? And I looked at the science. This is things that I do normally and what I've done throughout my career. And I was pretty much uh, dumbfounded as this whole thing unfolded because um, I'd worked with a lot of dangerous things in my, in my career, but this one had kind of flown under the radar. And I'd worked even with fluoride compounds, pretty hazardous ones. And but the idea of putting um, fluoride in drinking water just—I've never really thought about it. And frankly, I had never lived until recently in, in a fluoridated area. 
So I looked at it, and I went back, and I shared the information with my boss, and she looked at me, and she said she didn't feel it was morally right for us to take steps just to protect our own families. So she said, I don't know who you have to talk to. Get it turned off. And I didn't know what this meant. I thought this might be a little 5% of my time project for a little while. I had no idea. It was green. I wasn't a politician or anything. I'm just a nerdy science guy who can tell, you know, when I looked at this, I I could tell someone was trying to blow smoke up my backside about this issue on fluorides. And and so I started making a few phone calls and doing a few things, not knowing where it would lead. And almost overnight, the project uh, mushroomed to an international in scope kind of thing. And I began to get correspondence from um, both sides of both oceans and all across North America. And um, so the thing just kind of grew from there. And now the Lilly Center, um, we've kind of known around the world for certain things that we've been involved in. And it keeps mushrooming. And now we're at the place where I'm very glad to say that we see that fluoridation, the light is at the end of the tunnel. The, the house of cards of water fluoridation is wobbling. And it's nearing collapse. And we're working really hard right now to give it a final push. And not just us. There's a lot of other really amazing people working in this effort. But uh, we're close now, and um, we just like to see this thing go away. Well, what's the actual origins of fluoride? How did it start ending up in our drinking water? Well, you know, putting fluoride in drinking water, the the concept that the American public has heard is that it's to help prevent cavities. A lot of people get get fluoride mixed up with chlorine. Chlorine is put in the water to kill germs in the water. Fluoride is put in the water to help prevent cavities. It's the only thing that we put in our water that actually is designed to affect change in the human body, in other words, to treat or to treat a condition in the human body. So it's a medication for water. That's, that's what you would define medication as, a substance uh, given to you to, uh, to be ingested or somehow injected, et cetera, to be taken into the body to affect uh, physiologic change and response. But this, this um, where we get it from is a whole story unto itself, but the purpose of doing it extensively was to help prevent cavities. The issue, of course, is today, now we know two things, that there's plenty of science that shows that fluorides are not, frankly, very effective at preventing cavities where they occur most. And secondly, there are a whole bunch of side effects. Um, the idea that fluorides would only affect your teeth, that just doesn't make any sense at all. So. And fluoride, I mean, actually, I, I always heard, isn't it, a better treatment would be just to rub it on your teeth rather than drinking it. Isn't that true? Yes, actually, you know, that's something that most people have, uh, you know, a greater number of people are finding this out, but the vast majority of the impact of the little impact that fluorides have in preventing cavities, that occurs when it's touching the teeth in your mouth. In other words, there's a topical effect. That's largely the predominant or primary way that it works. That should have, when that news came out, um, it was first kind of noise around around 1999 and that general era. Um, that should have ended water fluoridation because the, the whole point of putting it in the water was that the, the theory was you had to drink it and it would be systemically ingested and in, incorporated into your teeth as they were forming under the gums, and then they would be strong and cavity resistant. But now we're finding out that the primary way that it helps to prevent a little bit of cavities, not a lot because it doesn't do that much, is, is topical. So the analogy you probably heard is why would you drink ingest a primarily topically acting substance. The, the analogy, of course, is we don't drink sunscreen or sunblock to prevent sunburn. Right. Um, we apply it topically. So if, if you went to your doctor and he handed you a tube of sunblock and said, drink this to prevent um, sunburn, you'd look at him like he was crazy. That's and, true. <laughs> uh, so this whole idea 
uh, and you're going to find that the people who promote fluoridation, and, and you know, that's where you are in Chicago. That, that's kind of the epicenter, one of the epicenters. The, the American Dental Association is based right there in Chicago. Oh. And they pushed this whole thing. And, um, you know, the other, the real big promoter, of course, is the Centers for Disease Control. But there's some other promoters like the ADA there in Chicago. And um, it's just kind of disturbing to me as, uh, as a public health person to sort of see how this thing has unfolded and continued to be promoted. Well, it's it's pretty well, I can't say 100% proven, but I mean, it's a pretty well-known fact that it is definitely harmful and it's not doing exactly what it's supposed to. I mean, with that being known, what is the reasoning that it's not being stopped? I know that's a hard question, but who's with who's stopping it? You know, we know it's bad. Why is it still being done? Well, that you know what? That question right there, that is probably the key fundamental question. And I, I get asked that question. You know, I, I'm, I receive calls from all over the place, emails from all around the world. And, and here's my sort of, after having done this for almost eight years now, what I've come to the conclusion is the reason that fluoridation continues, that there's a primary reason and there's some sort of reason to support that. But the primary reason is, is that it is terrifying to individuals, to society as a whole, to contemplate the fact or even consider the fact that something this harmful could have been missed for this long um, by the very people that we trust, the public health and the medical community. Um, that that's terrifying to people on a subconscious or or even or a conscious level because if it's true and it is um, that they have missed it and it is this harmful. Um, if it's true, then then what does that say about who you can trust anymore? I mean, first we found out that you know I shouldn't say first, but we've heard that a lot of stuff happening in the, in the religious circles. You know, you find out all these sex scandals inside churches and awful things happening um, in the church, Catholic church, etc. Um, and so, and, and not just there, but elsewhere in the churches, having to do with money and sex and all these kind of things. And so we began to find out that you know you can't trust people in the ministry. And then we've been, of course, we've been finding out that you can't trust political leaders. All kinds of things come out about political leaders. And so those people who are supposedly looking out for our interests, and now we're finding out that doctors and, and public health people have managed to enable this thing to continue. That's really a tough nut to swallow because and I think you can understand why. Why, If we can't trust doctors, then what's safe and real anymore? Well, beyond that issue, just real quickly, the real sort of practical uh, logistical reason and, and the practical reason that this continues is that people who do know about it are petrified of being embarrassed or sued, bottom line. There is a growing and dawning awareness in the medical and public health and dental communities that, uh-oh, we really stepped in on this one. And you know how things are today. People will try desperately to not avoid I mean, to avoid admitting that harm has occurred because they're afraid of the lawyers and they're afraid of uh, career embarrassment. So really, that's what my assessment of it is. It actually seems ridiculous, too, because we know it's bad and then they continue to ignore it. Well, when it finally does break, there's going to be even more issues because they're going to say, well, you knew back then that it was bad, but why did you continue? Well, that's just it. That's actually one of the things that we've been doing, John. That, that's fascinating that you bring that up because... We have, you know, in this era of the Internet and, and these kind of things, I don't really grasp how people think that they can keep this hidden. It's just only a function of time. And, of course, all kinds of cities now right and left are trying to bail on fluoridation and get out of the whole fluoridation game. And, and major corporations are now backing away from um, fluorides, too. We can talk about that if you like. 
But this idea that why don't they um, admit it now rather than have to be uh, admit it later, it comes down to this issue that people are terrified of this. This is going to dwarf tobacco and asbestos. And, I mean, this is huge. This statement I'm going to say is really big, and I'm aware that it's big. But based on my conversations with lawyers across the country and other developments that are happening, this is going to dwarf tobacco to be the single biggest thing ever to hit the United States court system. This is terrible. But why do I say that? It's because there's so many different subgroups of people that have been harmed by it. So it's going to be, look out, here come the legal actions, and they're starting now. Yeah. Well, we were talking off air. You and I are both the same age, and we were in the heyday of this. I mean, when we were kids, this, you know, this was like the Holy Grail, fluoride and water. It was amazing. You know, you'd never have cavities again. No, you're right. This was something that is mom's apple pie, good and safe and all-American. And, and, you know, it, it was, and to that, and this is really what I call it's sort of like the sacred cow in the public health uh, arena that, you know, you don't question it. It's sort of like don't ask, don't tell. Why would you ever look sideways at fluoride? But, you know, if you know anything at all about and the electrochemistry of fluorides, what they do in the body, how they work, and um, this, this is really kind of a no-brainer. And the very idea that we would tell people, put it in the water and drink of it, as much of it as you want, as long as you want, throughout your whole life, no matter what other fluoride sources that you have, you're exposed to, and no matter what other your, your predisposed health conditions or other kind of health history you have, uh, what I, and no matter what your nutritional status is, just keep drinking it as much as you want. That violates very basic fundamental principles of toxicology and pharmacology. And so, you know, like I say, this is a no-brainer. The, the thing about it is, though, that in order to make it go away, for fluoridation to end, there has to be uh, some real steps taken that will take this out of the arena of discussion amongst scientists because, you know, scientists, they can quibble back and forth on all kinds of things. Hey, scientists said the world was flat, right? Yeah. I mean, the world is not flat, and fluoridation is not safe. So um, this is something right now that I'm glad to see that we're um, approaching the collapse of fluoridation. Well, actually, before we get too much farther so I don't overlook it, what, how, what ways are there the listeners can do something about this? I mean, can they call or write? or In what ways can they help this fight? Well, there's a lot of things that um, your listeners can do. It kind of depends on what their interests are. I, I will say this, that sometimes I, I get correspondence from around the world, and, and very so many people want to help, and they feel like, well, what can I do? I'm just an average citizen. I'm not a scientist. And I say, well, you know, that's, that's okay, because we don't need this. We have enough science to have already collapsed fluoridation. Fluoridation is not going to collapse um, necessarily because we have more science that suddenly bursts upon the scene. What we, we've got plenty of science for that now, and as you know, that, and I'm sure you've heard, that you can basically twist the science study any way your predisposition inclines you to do. And I've seen that happen, and it's just very sad. That's, scientists, you know, we act like science is so objective. No, it's not. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. Frankly, people in the science, people who are not scientists need to know that scientists have biases. They have um subconscious or conscious objectives that they're trying to achieve. They have a lifestyle they like to maintain, salaries they want to maintain, et cetera. So um, there are some specific things that could be done. Uh, maybe before I, I share a couple of those things, um, there, I mean, it sort of, ha I think it might be useful to set the stage a little bit about 
um, some of the groups that have been harmed and, and some of the legal things that are happening. Would that be okay to do? Or? Yeah, that's fine. You, I mean, we want all the information we can get, actually. That's the purpose of having you here. We need this uh, out here in the public and clear, valid information. Well, yes, I, I'm so glad that you're working to educate folks because there is a lot of um, information that's available today. And, and I'll say this. Um, I've seen the, the fluoride promoters, they like to say that anything that comes off the Internet is, is hokum. They like yeah. to say it's just junk science and all that. And, well, there may be some junk stuff that's out there. Yeah, there probably is. And there's also in, in the normal so-called arenas of, of all other science disciplines, there's junk stuff that's out there. But there are some real basic almost kind of common sense scientific things that have come out now that you really can't argue against. And really, these are the things that we like to talk to people about. And and I think that people who really understand where this is heading and see that there are certain groups that are harmed and that, that this is really, you don't have to be a scientist to be effective in this. I've seen very small groups, even individuals in certain communities, collapse a whole fluoridation um, program simply by their dedication to it and by their getting smart about it. And that's what you're about here today is you want to get people smart about the, what the facts are. I think Correct. that's really cool. What, the, what exactly, when it comes down to it, the health, you know, from a scientific point of view, what does it do to the human body? You know, how bad is it? What's the cause and effect? Well, um, I suppose the best way to, to look at it is is that um, fluorides, because of their properties that they have, uh, they're kind of like the big gorilla on the block. Uh, they're they're um, electron scavengers. What that means is that they go around saying they take a look and they're, they're eyeing the electrons and other atoms and, and, and they... Uh, willing to basically uh, scavenge those electrons. And what that does is it creates a domino series of events in your body. And so um, give an example, for instance, um, a lot of the fluorides that are, as, as we speak here right now, inside your body and inside my body are a, a little bit half, less than half of all the fluorides that you've ever ingested are still somewhere in your body. And um, what does that mean? Uh, well, your, your body tries to get rid of fluoride because we only need a very tiny trace amount of it. But there are certain places where you have calcified tissues in your body where the calcium and the fluoride are going to look at each other and say, hey, let's get together, and so it's going to bind, and you're going to wind up with fluoride deposits. And, and you're going to see that in your bones and joints and also in your pineal glands in your brain. And that's very disturbing that actually the highest concentration of fluoride uh, in the human body here in America is, from what the science shows us now, is up in your pineal gland. That's really kind of disturbing when you think of all the things that your pineal gland uh, is involved in. Um, but it also shows up, of course, in the deposits in your bones and joints. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the key things is, is that, uh, and the National Research Council alluded to this in 2006, the National Research Council of the National Academies of Science, a real prestigious group, they said that we need to do some research on um, the immune effects, your immune system from fluoride. Because guess what? Fluoride deposit in your bones where your immune cells are generated. And that's pretty sobering when you think about it. Um, but beyond that, there's other kinds of impacts. For instance, if you're a kidney patient or you're a diabetic, uh, that NRC, the National Research Council, in 2006, they said that kidney patients and diabetics are what they call susceptible subgroups that are particularly especially vulnerable to harm from fluoride ingestion. Mm -hmm. So if you have
have anyone out there who has um, any of your listeners who have kidney stones or chronic kidney disease or are on dialysis or are, um, you know, there's several kidney transplants. There's several different kinds of things that involve the kidneys. Um, or you might be a caregiver for someone who has that. Um, it's very, very disturbing. Um, in 2008, um, we had kind of launched some efforts and we kind of uh, backed the National Kidney Foundation into a corner and they wound up removing their endorsements of water fluoridation. And um, it was kind of disturbing actually how that whole thing came about because I was sent a position statement, a, doc, a piece of paper from them, uh, a few sheets of paper on what their stance on fluoridated water was in 2007. They sent it to me and I looked at the thing and it was written on what looked like a typewriter. Uh, it was so old. Oh, well, that's and, good. <laughs> And so I contacted them, and some, we talked to some other folks, and they contacted them, lawyer contacted them. And anyway, they wound up, the, the American Dental Association has a thing on their website called a compendium. It's a list of organizations that they say have lent their name to endorse water fluoridation. And the Kidney Foundation name was on there. Well, the Kidney Foundation required had their name to be removed off that list. So they no longer endorse fluoridation. Now, on the other hand, you read their stance, their new paper, it was kind of kind of a strange document in a lot of respects because it had some inconsistencies in it. But the bottom line is, is they removed their endorsement of water fluoridation. Well, why? Well, because the National Research Council, one of the reasons was is they actually admitted that um, when fluoridation started, you know, 50-plus years ago, nobody bothered to look what it would do to kidney patients in a real thorough way. Nobody looked at it. And, and so now we know that kidney patients and even diabetics, um, diabetics tend to be really thirsty. But what does that mean? You ingest more fluoridated water, which means more of it uh, deposits in your, um, uh, in your body and you have more of these um, other effects. So the kidney patients, it's an issue to damage to the kidneys as opposed to your bones because when you can't, when you can't pee it out as well because your kidneys don't work as well, mm -hmm. then you wind up getting more of it depositing uh, in your bones. But then the very thing, like if you have kidney stones, um, what do they tell you if you have kidney stones? Drink a lot of water. Right. But then the very thing that you drink to prevent the kidney stones can harm the tissue in the kidneys around where the stones would form. So those are some very disturbing things. And I would we mentioned a few minutes ago about people getting involved. Right. If, any, if anyone is... Uh, in, in your listening audience is a kidney patient or a uh, diabetic and uh, or a caregiver for one of those two groups. Um, these are the kind of folks we need to speak out to hold the kidney patient, uh, foundation, National Kidney Foundation and other groups accountable for not warning openly because the kidney foundation is another story I can tell you, but the bottom line is if you ask any, take a group of 100 kidney patients, and I've asked a lot of them, and ask them what they know about fluoride. Virtually none, almost all, would say never heard a word about it. That's an outrage, and considering me, that's so counterproductive for their disease. I mean, that that should be part of their medical treatment. A doctor should explain to them not to have fluoride. Well, yes. I mean, from my perspective, my opinion. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be. I'm a public health professional, and you know, um, I can tell you this: that um, there's a reason the Kidney Foundation yanked their endorsement of fluoridation. You can draw your own conclusions. Right. So, um, you know, lawsuits, et cetera, that would be my sort of feeling about it. But isn't it also, I, I was reading too, that it's extremely bad for younger children too, where they say you shouldn't have it in like baby formulas and all that. You should not use your tap water. Well, 
absolutely, and that's a whole other issue that's kind of fascinating. I don't know if you're, you're you might want to do this, and I encourage others to do this who are listening to this. Go down to one of your uh, retailers like Target or something like that, and uh, they sell a bottled water there by Gerber. It's called Gerber Pure, mm-hmm. and it's really great that they have this bottled water now. It's unfluoridated, and they're selling it specifically so that parents of young babies won't use um, won't use fluoridated tap water for making their baby's milk formula. That's the reason that they sell it, and they're concerned about something called dental fluorosis. And um, and the it's a staining of the teeth that lasts your whole life. It's caused by overexposure to fluoride at certain uh, at a young age. And um, so here's what you've got: is you've got Gerber of all companies, Gerber selling an unfluoridated bottle of water specifically so that moms and dads and other caregivers um, won't have to use fluoridated tap water for making baby formula. But how many people who are listening to this either don't know about that or maybe don't have the money to buy, you know, bottled of water. They're already paying for their tap water bill and all that kind of thing. Um, and just to me, that's really disturbing. The other thing is, is that if you also go to a store like that, like maybe Target or something, they've got uh, these things called toddler training toothpaste now. Um, have you seen those, Jan? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, there's three brands that I've been looking at. There may be more. One of them is Oragel, Colgate, and Aquafresh. And like I have one in my hand here um, from Oragel, it says uh, training toothpaste for toddlers. And right on the front of it, on the box, it says, safe if swallowed, fluoride-free. So, so, so they know it's bad for us. I mean, they're writing it right there. Well, they're trying to, my opinion, they're trying to quietly back out of the room of fluoridating, providing fluoridated products for certain populations, meaning the babies in their formula. Right. And and this issue of, and it says that on all three, fluoride three, safe and swallowed on all three of these bands of toothpaste for toddlers. Well, what does that mean? That they weren't safe for the ones who used it prior to this coming out? What about... You know, all of our era and all the kids, you know, since you and I were uh, Yeah, because, I mean, we were, it was, like I say, it was the miracle thing when we were kids. Well, I find that this is actually a really fascinating show-and-tell item, and I encourage people, take this, uh, go, go down to one of these stores and, and uh, get, you know, Oragel or, or Colgate or whatever. Oragel, I like it, because on the back of the box, they actually have a statement right here, which is fascinating. They talk about... Um, uh, swallowing too much fluoride can cause fluorosis or white spots on your children's on your child's permanent teeth, um, and that's the reason, of course, they're not doing this. It's to prevent something called dental fluorosis. Which, if your if your listeners have never seen pictures of dental fluorosis, I know that we're on a radio, so it's a little bit hard to maybe visualize it. <laughs> Use your imagination. But, but but most people have seen people who have these uh, white or yellow kind of streaks or spots, usually on their top front middle teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people know someone like that. Maybe themselves they have it. It's kind of like, well, where'd that come from? And unfortunately, a lot of people think they just had poor dental hygiene or something like that. And they don't, and you know, they don't know that fluoride actually, if ingested when you're between the ages zero and eight in that uh, arena, there at that time frame, it can create the staining on your teeth. And it's very disturbing because um, if fluoride do this to the hardest surfaces in your body, which is your teeth. What, what do you think it's doing to your soft tissue? Yes. And uh, so in kidneys and thyroid glands and, and that whole issue of thyroid harm is a whole other issue because so many people, particularly ladies today, um, have hypothyroidism 
and I think they at least need to find out what the science is about fluoride uh, relating to the thyroid. But the, the these show and tell items that I mentioned, getting a, a gallon jug of Gerber pure pure water, or maybe some of this Orogel um, toddler training toothpaste, you know, and you take this and you actually show it to your representatives, or you show it to your um, uh, water district um, managers, et cetera, or your board members. Um, this is this is real public stuff now. And, you know, if, if major corporations are backing away from fluoride, like the National Kidney Foundation and these big companies with the toothpaste, et cetera, I think people ought to sort of be able to see where this is heading pretty easily. I agree. Did you – I don't know if this – like I said, I saw this in the Internet, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But I would heard something about they wanted the bottled water companies to start including fluoride. Was that true or is that just a crazy Internet thing? No, there there are bottled water companies that deliberately add fluoride to them under the guise of you know good for you and all that and and health prevent cavities et cetera. Um, you know, there's this feeling, there's this idea out there still in many places that fluoride is good and safe, and and so people see it as a marketing tool as, as sort of an added benefit to their water. So some people actually deliberately add it, which is really what the water utilities are doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, for babies. Um, a baby is has a very small body that's rapidly, the cells are rapidly dividing and growing, so they're more sensitive to the effects of the fluoride. And also, babies' kidneys, they just can't handle fluoride the way adults do, and even adults. You know, if, if you're uh, a person with kidney disease, mm-hmm. everybody took slightly less than half of all the fluoride. If you've got normal kidneys, they're functioning just normally, you're still going to retain a little less than half of all the fluoride you ingest somewhere in your body. And uh, if your kidneys don't work well, then you, you get into this terrible cycle where you start ingesting, you ingest it, and more and more of it starts being retained in your body because you just can't get rid of it, can't pee it out. So it won't so, just be the babies either. I, I assume it'd be when you get older, too. You know, when you absolutely. start having kidney problems, the fluoride's going to affect you. And, and what happens if you happen to be someone who is a kidney patient and a diabetic? Um, you know, then you start wondering, well, are there additive effects? Uh, is the harm accelerating? And, you know, that's what's so disturbing about this. The, the first legal action of starting um, on the health issues is starting on dental fluorosis. And I was going to say that if any of your listeners have a chance to look at their own teeth or their children's teeth, and if they see these funny white, ye- yellow, sometimes even brown stains or spots or streaks on their teeth, um, and they're not smokers or anything like that, um, or if the children, you know, have those, um, I really recommend they go see what these pictures of dental fluorosis. I, don't know, I can give you our website. We have plenty of pictures there. Yeah, you um, definitely want to give your website information out, too. You can do it now, and we'll do it in the end of the show, too. Sure. Um, our, it's a real simple website address. It's spotsonmyteeth.com, www.spotsonmyteeth.com. And um, we did something that had never really been done before, we decided to wade into an urban area in Atlanta in the Centers for Disease Control's backyard and start showing pictures of dental fluorosis to people and say, hey, uh, you, you have this on your teeth. You know someone who has it on their teeth, and do you know what caused it? It was the darndest experience, just the most amazing experience to see and disturbing, very disturbing to see the ignorance of how people's eyes would just say, whoa, wait, wait a minute. My brother has that. I have that. My son, my daughter has that. And they say I, they have all these things that even their dentists would tell them, oh, it's, uh, it's some other cause or something like that. Uh-huh. So, and you know, there's a reason that cosmetic dentistry 
is the fastest growing segment of the dental industry right now. A lot of people, you see all these things about teeth whitening and all this kind of stuff. Well, in some cases, in many cases, people are seeking these veneers, you know, that you can put on your teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really expensive. But the, the rub is, is that the classification system for dental fluorosis is, is rigged. No other way for me to say it but to tell you it's rigged. It's meant to diminish the, the impact. Uh, there are different classes that can be called very mild, mild, moderate, or severe. Uh-huh. And, and the way they do it, is um, in order to get any of those classifications, you have to have at least two teeth with that staining on it. So if you happen to be a person with one of your teeth, let's say your top middle one, uh-huh. and if it's there, it's really visible, everybody can see it, then you don't have dental fluorosis because it's only on one tooth. It, does, it, it doesn't matter if it's just on one tooth, huh? <laughs> and they also don't tell you that very mild or mild can be on, on eight or ten teeth or more. In other words, the condition is not... Um, tied to the sheer number you have on the on the uh, on the end of how many are involved, you might have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve teeth with the staining on it, and it can still be very mild, quote unquote, because it covers less than twenty five percent of your tooth uh, of the second worst affected tooth. What they do is they take the second worst affected tooth and they make the Diagnosis based on that, not your worst affected tooth. That's actually ridiculous. My gosh, it should just be if you have one of any type. I mean, that should be it. That's why if you go to the website, um, you can see samples of, of what it looks like in different forms. And some people, they have these little, on the tips of their teeth, just these little white ridges kind of right on the biting edge. I've, I've actually got that. And and I, you know, I've seen this, and, and it, that can be called very mild, you know, and and. Um, but the rub is, is it can be on two teeth, or you might have, I have a little girl that, uh, anyway, long story is I get a lot of people that now more, not a lot, I should say a growing number of people who are calling saying, my child has this or that on their teeth. And on our website, people can send us a photo of their teeth, and we can send it over to a dentist and get it diagnosed. Uh, you know, I'm not a dentist, I'm not allowed to diagnose, and I don't attempt to do that. But um, I think most people who have seen the sheer amount of this that I have seen you get a pretty good idea of these, if, uh, the extent of it. Here's something really disturbing. Um, in 2010, let's see, I guess it was the end of 2010, um, they had a, uh, the, the National Center for Health Statistics had not released some info, this is from the CDC, that 41% of 12 to 15-year-olds now have this staining on their teeth. Wow. 41%. And the really bad stuff, the stuff it's like, if you look at it, you kind of, almost recoil. Some people might feel they uh-huh. not want to recoil. Uh, it's on like 3.6% of the um, children's teeth, of the teen teeth. And, and um, to me, that's, you know, this is, they, they get away with it. They call it just a quote, cosmetic defect. But that's all going to collapse in the courts because all kinds of people are going to say, hey, you know, it causes economic harm to me. I have to pay to get veneers in my teeth. And, and like this one girl who's in a legal case now, it might cost her over $100,000 over her lifetime um, just to get her teeth taken care of. That's, re- of this, to keep it that's ridiculous. You know, I'm going to so, have to – I have to go to your site now too because uh, my two front teeth, my top front teeth on the very bottom edge – are well, like white bands. I've never been able to figure out what in heaven's name they were, but from what you just said, I think I know what they are now. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, and, and the thing that's really kind of, as I say, really kind of makes you think, this is, this is an outer biomarker, something visible that you can see, 
what about the stuff you can't see? Right. You know, the, the that's occurred up in your brain. The Chinese, you know, a lot of places around the world, they won't fluoridate, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. They know better. Actually, that's what I was going to touch on, too. Uh, worldwide, other countries, what are their views on this? Well, um, there's different... It's largely the U.S. and Britain-influenced countries that continue to promote fluoridation because they have strong dental societies. Um, the thing that's disturbing for me, again, is that Dentists are trained about stuff that happens in your mouth. What business is it of dentists tell you that, oh, this is not going to harm your thyroid, no matter what your health conditions are, this isn't going to harm your kidneys, no matter what your history of exposure is. Dentists have expertise in the mouth. And we did something, uh, we got some information sent to us, which we released. Um, a gentleman did a Freedom of Information Act request to the Centers for Disease Control, mm -hmm. and he asked for the names, titles, and job descriptions of everybody inside CDC who was responsible for or had input into CDC's decision to support fluoridation. Real simple kind of idea. Who is it that, you know, provides input? Who is it that does the studies or analyzes it or makes statements, whatever? Guess what? Guess what came back? Hmm. One job description, one title. The, chair, the, the head of the oral health division of CDC. In other words, no toxicologists, no diabetes experts, no kidney professionals, no, no people with expertise in minority health issues, any of that. What you've got is, is one person, the director of the oral health division since around 1975, has basically been responsible for this thing to be continued. So what you've got is a very small group of people today are responsible for, and the public doesn't know this, they think that all these people have done all this research and looked at all these kind of angles about how space fluoride is, is it unsafe, is it safe, how much are we getting, et cetera, hasn't been done. It's been uh, the National Research Council documented volumes of really basic research. It's never, ever been done. That's and yet ridiculous. They make, this, they make this statement. CDC has made the statement that more than 60 years of research um, shows fluoridation to be safe. So, um, what, what is that? That's part of the fluoride gate scandal. Um, there's a scandal unfolding now, and it's been dubbed a fluoride gate. We actually had coined that term back in 2008, and now a lot of people, a growing number of people, are saying, well, we need to have fluoride gate hearings. Um, we need to really look into this whole scandal, and, and journalists are getting interested in it. And that's another thing that your listeners can do is if they know anyone who is in the in media, such as yourself, uh, or print journalists, television, et cetera, have them just do a Google search for fluoride gate, just one word, and uh, or contact us, and um, we can, you know, I can give them a lot of information. This Freedom of Information Act stuff that came out shows, and get this, the oral health people there inside CDC, mm -hmm. you, what group do you think they're very strongly tied to who would maybe perhaps, you might say, influence them? But the dental trade industry. Huh. So... So what business is it that dentists have of, tele of analyzing the research on whole body health effects of fluoride? It's I don't think they have any business doing that. None at all. It's ridiculous. If anything, maybe they should say that you should have some sort of powder you put on your teeth by yourself but not be drinking it throughout your entire body. No, I, I mean, that just violates fundamental principles of um, toxicology and pharmacology. And so, you know, this, there's, there's so many angles on this. It's really... And, and what's really kind of disturbing is is that the public health service people, health and human services, 
they, they recently, uh, I should say about a year ago, they decided to lower the amount of fluoride in water. And all these years they have said, it's great at one part per million small amount of water, don't worry about it. And now all of a sudden they had this revelation about a year ago that they're going to lower it a little bit. Sure. So why did they do that? Well, most people don't know the reason why. is um, EPA was just about to be sued by three groups. And it was going to be really ugly, and they desperately did not want to go on the witness stand. So they thought, well, let's just go ahead and. So they thought, well, let's just go ahead and CDC and HHS. They said, we'll just lower it a little bit. And they said, this way we'll address the dental fluorosis issue. But it doesn't address the dental fluorosis issue. Um, you don't want to give fluoride to drinking water for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and, you, and there's still going to be people who get dental fluorosis even with a slightly smaller amount. Is it originally true, I had read this before, that uh, when they first started doing this, fluoride was a, a byproduct of industrial waste or something and used to have to be disposed of like a toxic chemical, and then they started deciding, well, we'll throw it in water instead. Is, is there truth to that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that um, it has kind of a long history as to how it originally, what kind of fluoride, there are different forms of fluoride compounds that have been used over the years. Uh-huh. Today, Today, the vast majority of it comes from a collected air pollutant emission. They have these things that you can do where you can collect stuff on their way up through smokestacks. You, you spray water in, you can collect this stuff, and, and it prevents air pollutants. But um, the vast majority of that for quite a while now has been something called hydrofluorosilicic acid, which is basically a uh, fluoride, very, very dangerous um, uh, liquor, they call it, that they collect out of these air pollution scrubbers. And, um, you know, the stuff, you can't, you can't dump that stuff in, in international waters. You can't put it in a lake. You can't drop it. You can't put it in a river. But you can slowly drip it into the public water supply. And they, they put it in our water? I mean, you can't put it anywhere, but they put it in our water. What, what in heaven's name? Well, because, you know, the, the idea was they thought it would be a win-win. We won't emit it into the environment and pollute the environment through the air pollution and and uh, this way will help prevent cavities, too. But what they don't, what they don't tell you is, is, of course, 99% or more of the fluoride that's in city water doesn't go into your body, even if it was effective. It goes gets flushed down the drain, right, through your shower drains and through your laundry and all right. that. So it winds up getting dispersed into the environment. Um, and, of course, um, it, it creates this issue in the human body because we can't control the dose. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, it's such a small amount of water. Well, that, they're mixing something. The, the difference, there's a difference between concentration and dose, and that's the issue. A concentration may be small, meaning how much is in the water. But if you happen to be one of those people like diabetics or others that drink a lot of water or just get fluoride from other sources, then your, your dose may be, for you, a concern, even though you have a small concentration in the water. Well, year, years and years of it, too, though. I mean, it's not as if you're just doing it once. My God, you know, 30, 40 years of drinking it. Well, here, here's an example of something to keep in your mind. Go to your sink and get yourself a, a you know, decent-sized glass of water, maybe uh, 12 ounces or something or maybe a little bit more, and, uh, and look at it. And then you get your regular toothpaste tube, the fluoridated toothpaste, and they say use a pea-sized amount and spit it out. Well, the amount that they want you to spit out in the pea-sized amount is in your large glass of water. So wow. you have to spit it out in toothpaste, but you can drink it in water. That, that, the exact yeah, but, same amount. Well, so, um, well, actually, speaking of toothpaste, I wanted to hit on that. Fluoride in toothpaste, is that okay or is that actually bad too? Well, there's, 
there's several different sort of, mm, in toothpaste, at least you spit it out. But the issue is, is that toothpaste has a, uh, a very high concentration of fluoride in it, large amounts of this stuff. And so you can't tell me that you don't absorb some of that through the mucous membranes of your mouth, even if you're religious and spitting it out. And uh, a lot of people, of course, the children, uh, until below at a young age, a lot of children don't have a well-developed swallowing reflex. Mm-hmm. So that's why they have these toddler training toothpaste now, because it's known that children are going to swallow a lot of this stuff. It also doesn't make much sense that they tell you to spit it out, but then they flavor it like bubble gum, and they put little um, stars and fairies right. and unicorns all over it. And what do you expect a kid to do, right? He's used to swallowing stuff that tastes sweet and good. So um, my opinion, uh, this is only my opinion, and you know everyone needs to educate themselves about this, but... Correct. I recommend that people get an unfluoridated toothpaste. Um, and, uh, you know, remember, lack of fluoride does not cause cavities. Too many sugars on your teeth and poor nutrition, et cetera, and lack of access to dental care and oral hygiene. These Correct. are the things that ca- cause cavities. Okay, because I actually wanted to clarify that because I wasn't sure if toothpaste fluoride was good or not, so that's a good one. And other thing, isn't there fluoride in other products too? All kinds of things have fluoride in them that you don't know about? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when you go to the store today and you buy a loaf of bread, uh, well, in many cases, they actually make the bread with fluoridated water. So when you take a bite of your bread, you're getting a dose of fluoride. Um, a lot of times, you know, canned foods, uh, processed foods, they're going to have fluoride in it, but they don't have it on the label. So um, you, you're getting this, the, the term for it is um, multiple source overdosing because you don't know. I can't tell you how much you ingested last week or yesterday. Um, the Department of Agriculture has this list of fluoride content in a small number of foods. Um, but, you know, for babies, they get it in their juices. Sometimes they get it in chicken sticks. Very disturbing if you read about chicken sticks. because oh, um, they, they grind up, like, I guess, accidentally some of the bones from the chickens. And so the bones of the chickens have collected fluoride. And so the chicken sticks have a, that's one of the higher sources of fluoride. And so, of course, the kids get it in juices made of fluoridated water and, and, you know, they're getting in a lot of different sources. So, you know, this is where this kind of information, a lot of this information, this really, like I say, is a no-brainer. The trick is to channel the, the information to the people who have the authority to actually end fluoridation. And, and you know, in, in my mind, what that has to do is we have to educate people who are, um, you know, who are like water district leaders and also people uh, who are political leaders who can um, have fluoride gate hearings or that, and who are willing to, you know, take on the American Dental Association. Yeah, who have the nerve to do it. That's the big issue. So many politicians don't want to do this stuff. And, you know, I, I, you know, for me, I'll just say this, you know, I haven't had a salary in over seven years. Um, I'm just doing this because, you know, we started up that company and, you know, some things and, and, and it suddenly this thing sort of grew and, you know, it was taking 95 or hundred percent of my time. And so of course there went my salary, but some things in life, I, I've just kept doing it because I, I just felt like all my whole life has trained me and prepared me to do this. Mm-hmm. And for my own family's sake, um, you know, there's, I, I would not be able to not do something about this. This is something that when it's over with, we're going to look back on it and say, wow, I can't believe this went on that long. 
But um, I, I do want to mention, too, you know, um, if there's anyone out there that um, is a person of means or knows a person of means who wants to get involved, there's an opportunity now to actually collapse this whole thing once and for all. And it would really happen a lot faster, I think, um, if some folks would like to sink in a little uh, sort of a legacy contribution or gift, if you will, um, to do this. Um, because um, the other side is, is very well funded and they, they get away with certain statements because the people who are working to end this, it's not just us, there's plenty of really great groups, um, but we're just doing this, you know, a lot of people are part-timers at it or they don't have any funding and, you know, things like that. Uh, my boss mortgaged her house, um, and she's never gotten that money back, and she's not a wealthy person. I maxed my credit cards, and um, we just live very simply. You're down to one car and a little two-bedroom apartment because some things in life are just worth taking a stand on. Well, and, I agree. Uh, I, my conscience would not allow me to have not done this, and that's not to be, sound like it's all noble. It's just the way it is. Um, this is knowing, and you know the toxicity of fluorides relative to other compounds this is a really dangerous thing to be taking into your body and it creates synergistic effects with other compounds and other things that you're exposed to like lead or aluminum so um it potentiates or makes more harmful those other exposures what have been so the, a lot the long-term effects for like i say people in our age group that have been having it since we were kids is there anything that's showing you know how much worse it is for us since we've had it our entire lives well, the National Research Council talked about the fact that there's likely an increase in hip fractures at four parts per million, which the other side likes to say that that's such a huge amount compared to one part per million that we've been exposed to, but they forget that uh, we get fluorides from a whole bunch of sources. And um, there's, there's, the other side likes to say that, oh, nothing's ever been proven. There's no, uh, no health harm ever been proven. And I'll be the first to tell you, fluoride exposure does not cause everything known to man. It doesn't. Right. But there are certain things that it does cause. And, and the other, the rest of the world, uh, places like China, they won't touch fluoridation with a 10-foot pole. India won't do it. They, they've already figured it out because some of their areas have high fluoride content in some of their wells and their, in their water tables. And they've seen these people bent over with skeletal fluorosis. Um, and, you know, we have uh, joints. You mentioned long-term exposure. Many people today go to their doctor and they've got joint pain or stiffness. And if your doctor doesn't know that anything at all about something called early-stage skeletal fluorosis, mm -hmm. and in all probability he or she doesn't, um, you can be diagnosed as having, quote, arthritis. And they start giving you all these drugs and other things like that. Right. When really perhaps what you've got is the first painful stages of skeletal fluorosis. And the other side likes to say, well, we have never, that's hardly ever been diagnosed in the U.S. or we never see it. Well, it's one of those things that if you don't look for something, of course you don't find it. Right. Um, or it's been misdiagnosed as something else. Yes. And there's a lot of things that fluorides, you know, we're exposed to a lot of things in our environment, not just fluoride, of course. Um, but I think that um, given what we do know about fluorides now, to just continue this practice basically because the political spectrum, those the folks on both sides of the aisle don't have the political will to call into question the American Medical Association or the Dental Association or the CDC. Um, you know, CDC has been called on the carpet for some really awful 
real blunders they've made recently. You know, you've heard these things they've done, like the business of lead in Washington, D.C. water. Right. Um, you know, the, the, um, that tuberculosis traveler and, you know, all these other kinds of things where they just, or the, the Katrina formaldehyde trailers. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. That, um, that got quite a bit of publicity. That was, that was just really basic science. I mean, that just shows you that they can take uh, simple science and try to intermix policy with it and gum it all up. <laughs> well, I think when science is mixed with business, corporations, and money, that's a bad mixture because then your your outcomes can be completely tainted because your scientist is getting paid by this corporation, so they they got to look that way. Right. Well, they there's there's financial reasons, I mean, real good reasons why people are, uh, I think, trying to make the fluoride issue go away quietly or, or dispose of, a, in other words, turn a problem into an asset. You know, the definition, most people don't know the definition of waste is when a thing does not have economic value. So if you can sell this stuff you collect from the air pollution scrubbers to somebody and drip it in the water, then it has economic value. You don't have to treat it like hazardous waste. You know, just right? that statement right there, Daniel, something that comes from the air pollution scrubbers and put it in water. What the hell? I mean, that that right there alone describes the entire problem. Well, and that, see, we have contorted things in order to do this. People, remember I told you at the very beginning that this is very hard for people to grasp, that it's terrifying to admit that, that our health people could do something like this, miss right. something this harm. Um, and the vast majority of doctors and dentists, they just literally have never looked at it close. The ones who have looked at it, they get, in many cases, they get really concerned, like, whoa, what is this? The first thing they think of is, am I liable? Did I prescribe this, fluoride supplements, or did I uh, not tell them, uh, kidney patients about this or that? You know, that's the very first thing many people are concerned about. And I think health trumps all those considerations. Oh, I agree. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the issue, for instance, we broke the story nationally that blacks, and Hispanics are disproportionately harmed by fluoride, um, and particularly on the blacks issue, um, because we, um, black Americans, uh, the Centers for Disease Control have released some information uh, buried in the back of this document that most Americans would never see. They showed that um, uh, black Americans and Hispanics have um, more of this dental fluorosis of all types than Caucasians. Well, that's and we got, we got some people involved, and you're in Chicago there, and, and, and I think that the inner city populations, minority and otherwise, uh, and particularly low-income communities, they really need to weigh in on this. There are going to be legal settlements. There are going to be legal cases happening. And what we're looking for now are people who have dental fluorosis, who would like to get hooked up with an attorney and pursue legal action, um, you know, or people who have kidney disease who want to really push this, or diabetics, et cetera, um, because... We really need people to get put under oath, and they don't get put under oath unless there's a hearing or a court case. And so if um, any of the folks that are your listeners there uh, know people who have the stains in their teeth, have them call me or, or email me. I mean, I can give you my email address or phone number. I don't know how you want to do that. but um, uh, It's up to you. You can give them both. It doesn't matter. Are there, are there like group action lawsuits you know, happening now that people need to call to be added to, you know, that type of thing? We're still in the early stages of litigation. Um, there is a currently there's a case happening um, um, where 
this one bottle of water manufacturer and some other folks who had fluoride in their food, uh, two, two companies are being sued, in other words, um, because uh, of this young girl who uh, she got these stains on her teeth on, I don't know, it's like 10 or 12 teeth, something like that, and she's going to need these veneers put on her teeth at a major cost. She's, you know, just a, a lovely young girl who now has to deal with this her whole life, the pain and the, and the other issues associated with it. And um, that legal case is moving forward. But what we're looking for now is inner city or urban community water consumers who um, are, you know, who have this stuff on their teeth, who want to make us think about it. And uh, they deserve to because, frankly, you know, this affects your psychology, your, your social interactions. I have people tell me that they won't smile. They have a hard time going to job interviews because of what this did to their teeth. They don't like to smile. It makes their personality sort of more closed in, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, in your state, I believe uh, fluoridation is required. But that doesn't mean you don't have to tell people about the effects. You know, just because a thing might be mandated or allowed by law doesn't mean you have a, a, I'm no attorney, but from what I understand anyway, um, it seems like you have a responsibility to at least disclose what the side effects are. I got another and, question for you here before I forget, Daniel. Is there any way to filter fluoride out of your system? Or is, I, mean, you know, I mean, as far as your tap water, is there like filters that will remove fluoride or is there anything that can be done other than just buying bottled water? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, the, the way to take it out of your drinking water if it comes to your tap fluoridated is there's a couple different ways you can do it. Um, you can use uh, the best way that takes virtually all of it out is something called a distiller. Um, unfortunately, they're not particularly cheap to get these, but you can get these countertop or under-counter sort of units, um, maybe for three or 400 bucks, and that's not cheap, I recognize, but that's one way to deal with it. Reverse osmosis units will take out anywhere from 45 to 96% of it. Um, they're all different. You have to find out, you know, which ones do better. Um, right. Don't just buy a osmosis unit. Um, interestingly enough, uh, there are also one of the best ways to take out fluoride out of drinking water is to run it over with something called bone char. What is bone char? It's cow bones that they've uh, charred. Mm -hmm. And um, bone char, the reason, it's kind of sad because the reason that it takes fluoride out so effectively is the same reason why your, your bones oh, absorb. It's absorbed, fluoride. isn't it? Yeah. So um, it, it's very, it's not a very pleasant thought, you know, when you realize that the bone char is what takes it out. Um, uh, but, you know, reverse osmosis has varying levels of effectiveness. Distillers are, are really good. Um, but all that has expense. And if you happen to be somebody who doesn't have the funding to afford that, or you can't buy the bottle of water that's unfluoridated, what, you don't count? Um, you know, that's really what they're saying. Is that too bad? Suck that's it up, a shame. Take a hit for the team. Take a hit for the team. You know, that's what they're saying. And, and your kidneys can get messed up. Your teeth can get messed up. And, yeah, too bad. That's really what the de facto um, situation that's, is. That's absolutely terrible. I used to have a distiller, actually, and those do work good. But in the long run, you know, if you're not financially strapped, that's the way to go. Because, you know, if you figure the cost of all those bottled waters, distiller would pay for itself in no time. Right. Well, if, you know, if, if people um, feel the economic harm of this, I encourage them to talk to attorneys about it. And, and I've got, you know, if somebody wants to call me or email me, I can hook them up with, you know, a law firm. Um, the, the thing is, is that people who are harmed need to speak out, either economic harm or physiologic bodily harm. And those who, are, who have 
are in positions of influence with those who have the ability to end fluoridation, they need to get involved too. Um, positions of influence meaning maybe you know some attorneys, maybe you know a journalist at one of them, um, you know, in a ma- large media outlet. Um, the fluoride gate story needs to help. There's a whole investigative series that can be done on fluoride gate. And people can, I'm not joking about this. There's, I'm not overstating it. There will be, I believe, Pulitzer Prizes for the people who really break this in a big way. Um, they have to be willing to take some hits, you know, get the dental societies and stuff. They may not be happy with these journalists. Uh, but that's just the way it is. This thing's going to collapse anyway. It's getting very close to that. Um, and then people who are, like I say, people who are of means financially, who want to have a legacy, this is like the ultimate thing to invest in uh, because this is going to pay dividends and benefits for Americans and others for generations when fluoridation ends. Yeah, that would actually be an ideal thing if you're, you know, if you're older and you don't have a lot of family, rather than leaving your money to a museum or a church, give it to a foundation like this and really, really have a purpose. Well, we're not, you know, we're not a foundation. We're just a small little company. Well, you know what I mean, though. But I mean something like this yeah. that would have an amazing impact on future civilization, basically. Yeah, I, and I agree. I, I, I think that um, that people who really want to to see their money do something tangible. And, and see the effect of it, to invest in it now um, is going to help your own family as well as people all over. And, and like I say, there's disproportionately harmed groups that uh, it, my conscience just, you know, when I see these little babies in inner cities, single moms, they go to their kitchen sink to make the milk for the baby. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're, you know, a black family or a Hispanic family, you know, it, it, low income, no matter what, right. whichever, whichever race, if you're low income, you do that. This is just not right. And, of course, the League of the United Latin American Citizens has now um, a great guy by the name of Henry Rodriguez. He had uh, worked on this issue, and the organization last summer passed a resolution um, calling for a halt to water fluoridation. That's the largest Hispanic civil rights, the oldest, I guess, the oldest Hispanic civil rights organization in the United States has called for a halt to this. And, of course, you've got people, we've been working with uh, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s family. Mm-hmm. Um, his daughter, Bernice King, has called for a halt to fluoridation. Alveda King, his niece. Uh, Andrew Young, the former U.N. ambassador, he's called for a halt to fluoridation, um, you know, talking about harm to black citizens. And so... It's just an absolute ahead. outrage. I mean, it's there's just no... I'll tell you, someone like me worries about it because I've lived in the southwest suburbs of Chicagoland my entire life. And my gosh, 30 years plus, I was drinking that water. I actually moved somewhere where I had a well. But for 30 years straight since I was a kid, I was drinking that. Well, and I mean, I don't want to unduly get people unduly concerned about it. But the fact of the matter is, um, this is not helping us. We know it doesn't help your thyroid. It does not help your, and in many cases, it can harm your bones and joints and thyroid and your pineal gland. Um, The science is there. Or certain aspects of it. Other aspects that should have been investigated have just never gotten any attention because anybody that ever looked at it was ostracized. But now we've got some really reputable people, thousands of health professionals and others have signed a petition for ending fluoridation. And, you know, there's some great websites, good information uh, available for people. There's a book out, um, a couple of books out that people can get. Um, and so a lot of this, um, you can arm yourself with the facts. You know, other cities like just north of you there, Canada has having a wave of towns and communities bailing on fluoridation. 
I mean, Calgary has ended it. Um, Quebec has ended fluoridation. All kinds of places. Even here in the United States, this growing number of cities and communities are rejecting fluoridation. Now. That's what I was just so, going to ask you. In the United States, what are the effects? How many are people actually stopping it now? Cities, towns, states? Places like, you know, College Station, Texas, the big university down there uh, uh-huh. in that town. And, um, uh, you know, other places around ta- around the country have had referenda or the city councils have, have voted to end it. Um, Pinellas County in Florida has, has ended it, 700,000 people there. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of places right now that have an opportunity um, because of concern over the legal risk management issues. If you're a rate payer of a water district, and you don't want your water rates to go up, I'd be contacting your water utility and saying, you know what, um, you need to end this fluoridation thing because it's harming these people's teeth and they have a right to sue over it, you know. Um, so there's there's a lot of um, reasons to, uh, for, to get involved and things people can definitively do rather than just say write a letter to the editor. Nothing wrong with that, but you really have to get people who have the authority to do something and ask, ask them questions and, and hold them accountable, saying, I've now provided you with this information. It can be proven that you've been given this information. Um, do you want to just uh, fail to warn after having been given this information? Failure to warn is a big deal, and that's why people disclose things when they have a product or they have a recall, right? So um, there's a lot of reasons when you've got these big corporations tiptoeing away from fluoride. Uh, the cities need to be the next one to do it. So can I give you my phone, my email? Yeah, I was just going to say, Daniel, we're, we're running low here now, uh, but give any information you want, your website again, and any contact information you'd like. Sure, sure. Um, our website is spotsonmyteeth.com. That's www.spotsonmyteeth.com. And um, you can email me through the website, but I've got a better email. It seems to work a little easier. It's my, uh, I'll give you this one. It's stocking 2 at yahoo.com. My last name is Stockin. It's like stocking with no G at the end of it. So it's S-T-O-C-K-I-N, and then the numeral 2, Stockin2 at yahoo.com. And uh, if you want to call um, the Lilly Center, um, I'll, give you a, our, I'll give you a number you can call. It's 706-669-0786. That's 706-669-0786. And people can call you with any concerns or questions or anything pertaining to the fluoride then, right? Yes. We would love for people to get involved in any of these ways. If you've either got fluorosis on your teeth or you have, um, if you have uh, some financial means you'd like to get involved, that would be wonderful. But if you're a kidney patient or a diabetic or a member of a, of a, a disproportionately harmed minority community, maybe you're Hispanic or black and, and you know, black citizen, maybe you have heard what Andrew Young has said on behalf of the black community, um, I just think that would be really wonderful. Okay, and for all our listeners out there who've wanted to do something, here's your opening. Here's his phone number, email address, all the information. There's no excuse not to help. And, you know, the other thing is to get the fluoride gate um, scandal, just add, to help add momentum to it uh, being spread around the news about this. If you have connections with law firms or with media outlets, um, tell them they need to investigate fluoride gate, and they can contact me, and, and you know we can provide information for them. Um, there's there's uh, places you know we take these like that bottle of Gerber water, mm-hmm. um, you can take that in, physically put it in the hand of one of your water utility members, and they look at the smiling Gerber logo that's on there. 
and then it says uh, no added fluoride right next to it, and that ought to make people think. That's pretty hard hitting when you think about it. Well, when you put it in their hands, I've done this, and uh, I physically put one of these toddler training toothpaste, and, and you, when you put it in their hand, there's something about having the t- sight and touch two senses together when you see it Correct. right there. Uh, it seems to really impact people and, and uh, encourage them to take action and uh, realize they're not alone in taking Okay, well, Daniel, that has been very, very interesting talk, and I hope everyone's learned something about fluoride and the absolute dangers here. The reason, main reason I wanted to get you on is because you hear so much on the Internet, and I wanted a, more of an authority person to actually set it straight, and I think you did a very good job of that. So I want to thank you for being on. And uh, actually, if anything ever happens again, you got to contact us too because we'll put you right back on for any sort of update. All right, that was Daniel. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp, Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back. With us right now is Mike O'Clean and his friend Kathy Kressel from Haunted Rockford Tour. So how are you guys doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on once again. And it's quite a pleasure to have Kathy with us today. She is the paranormal guru of Rockford, uh, which for those of our listeners who don't know, is a city kind of in the middle of the northernmost part of the state. Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of history here and a lot of paranormal goings on and Kathy thankfully has joined us to share some of that. Yes, uh, Kathy, it's great that you can be with us. How are you doing uh, this evening? I'm great. How are you guys? Oh, we are wonderful. Doing real Uh, good. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) I'm doing good too, though. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to start out by kind of introducing you to our listeners and asking you kind of how you got interested in the paranormal to begin with and how you started doing haunted tours in Rockford. I started about um, seven years ago. Um, I originally started telling ghost stories to my children. I homeschooled my um, three girls all the way through high school and I would use the ghost stories as part of our history lesson. So yeah. that's how that all started. That, that would be great um, if more history teachers use that approach. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I really was, appreciate that. Yeah, it's because you're, you love history. So, um, And I wanted to give them the more personal touch of it. And so I would tell the ghost stories. And we would go. We've been all over the country visiting places in North Carolina and Gettysburg and um, Philadelphia and uh, Places like that, and I would tell them the story, and then we would go and you know try to scare them a little bit too. So that was they liked it; they responded well. And um, then um, my daughters were part of the young adult board for the Rockford Public Library, and um, I was working in, um, as a librarian assistant. And they we were talking about some programs one day, and they said I should do that for the library. So I went to my boss, and they said, you know, I do this thing with my kids, and they were thinking we should do it to, for Rockford. So the, my boss says, okay, try it. So I got a hold of the Rockford uh, Transit Authority, and um, we arranged a bus. They got a sponsor for me, and we uh, put it together. And the bus filled in like two days, so we opened another bus. So 
it, it's worked out wonderfully, and it's grown ever since, and it's exciting. I love doing it. Yeah, and it's amazing how it seems like there's it's just packed every year, and you're able to find new places every year. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, every season I go to uh, different places, and um, I love the research part of it. That's what makes it interesting, and you as a history buff know that. I um, have these wonderful gurus uh, at the library in the local history room, Janet. Uh, Carter and Jean Lithgow, and they help me out. And help, And sometimes they're researching other things, and they come across these weird little bits of history that I use um, in part of my tours uh, as stories, too. So it works out really well. I, I mean, I have a wonderful resource right at my fingertips. Well, Rockford's, I've never been there myself, actually, but it's an older area with a lot of history, isn't it? That's correct. Um, it, it is. Um, and it was settled by the basically you know, a bunch of Swedish people came here as immigrants. And so they've kept track of, of things and, um, and their ancestors. And so we've been able to, you know, keep that current and, and um, work on the history part of it. So it's been really interesting. And, um, you know, when you have people, they die, and then I tell the stories. It works out great. <laughs> yeah, it tends to work that way throughout of all the history, actually. <laughs> people people are born, then they die. What are some of your favorite stories that you tell on the tour? Um, like you said, every year it's different. I recycle some of my old favorite ones, though, because a lot of people request them, too. Um, there's a house on First Street downtown that belonged to a lady named Emma Jones and her husband. And um, Emma lived there before it got so congested downtown. And her house sits up on a hill. It's a wonderful old house. And uh, she, her and her husband lived there. They had some dogs. And um, her husband worked for a transportation company, so he would travel. And the story goes that she would sit in her top little window up there and watch the boats come in and she so she would know when he was going to be home her and her dogs would wait for him and um so they they spent their life there and and uh then as they got older frank passed away and emma missed him of course and her dogs and uh her dogs got older too and then they passed away and then it seems like emma slipped into some dementia and um her family had to unfortunately remove her from the home and they put her in a nursing home but emma was still determined she loved that house and so she would sometimes make her way out of the nursing home and walk back to that house. And the neighbors would see her trying to get in, and they would call, and the nursing home would come in and pick her back up and um, take her back to their, her new home. Um, after a while, the family couldn't afford both, and so they sold, had to put the house up for market, and um, realtor goes to show the house, and lo and behold, there's no electricity. So he has to leave the, the new couple in the living room, and he runs downstairs to the box to see what's going on with the electricity. And, of course, it's dark, so he has to light a match. And as he lights a match, he sees a little old lady standing in front of him, and then the match goes out. So he lights another match to see where she is, and she's not there. So he gets the lights on, and, of course, he doesn't say anything to the unsuspecting couple upstairs. Being a good real estate agent, he doesn't say a word, right? (laughs) Right, he doesn't say a word. And so he goes upstairs, and they love the house, so they end up buying the house. I mean, they were living their life, you know, and they noticed a few odd things. They heard footsteps sometimes, so it's knocking on the walls. And then one day, they came into the living room, and there's a lady standing there. And she asks them, what are you doing in my house? And they just both kind of turn to each other and look, and she just slowly walks out the front door. And so they were talking to the neighbors about it, and they said, oh, that must be Emma. She probably got out of the nursing home again. So this couple wanted to check up on the lady, so they called the nursing home, and the people in the nursing home tell them that Emma had actually passed away. So oh, wow. they get a little freaked out, and it's time to move on. And the house gets um, sold to uh, a business, 
and they make business offices in there. And it was for the Meld Company, and uh, which helps young mothers, uh, young teen mothers. So uh, they had to re- do a little bit of redecorating to get the house from uh, residential to commercial. And when they were working on the house, the workers would um, go outside to smoke cigarettes. And when they tried to get back in the house, the door would be locked and tools would be missing. And so I don't think Emma was really excited about what they were doing on their house. They also said that every time the ladies in the office would bring goodies to eat, and sometimes it would be like a chunk of cake taken right out of the middle. So they actually, when they started bringing the, the treats, they actually decided to start just giving Emma a piece so she would stop demolishing their, their cake. So, okay. I've never heard, um, I've actually never heard that before, ghost eating your treats. Right. She had a little bit of a sweet tooth. Right. Um, so people say that they still see Emma. Um, and one of the, the best stories, I love um, a part of this story, is one of the ladies was actually leaving in the parking lot is kind of toward the back of the house. So she drove out of the parking lot and then towards the front of the house. And as she was passing the front of the house, they have a um, couple of old doors and you can see, you know, through the window and uh, there's a staircase and she saw a little old lady standing on that staircase. So that one always gives me the goose pimples. And um, the first time we were going to go there, I was uh, teaching a totally entirely different class at the library and uh, was teaching teens something about babysitting. And I was telling them, you know, to get them excited about what we had upcoming for teens, I was telling them about this ghost tour. And I just happened to mention Emma's house on First Street. (laughs) One of the little girls raised her head and said, that's my house. (laughs) Uh-oh. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so now I have to call the parents because I can't just, you know, if the girl just heard their house was haunted by, you know, me. Right. So I, <laughs> I called the house and I talked to the parents and, and they didn't really want us to come in, but they didn't mind us being, you know, coming at their house. And I said, well, I'm going to show up with the tour. So, you know, I call them up and I show up with 60 people coming out of the bus. And when we got out of the bus, the little girl had taken it upon herself to dress herself in a white gown and she was sitting up in that window. And I stood out of the, I guess stepped off the bus and I look up at that window and I'm like, oh my gosh, are you seeing this? And the people were just like, you know, in shock. And then she kind of waved. I'm like, oh, it's right. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, kind of, everybody kind of chuckled. And then uh, as we were standing in front of their house with, you know, these 60 people, so she has a little brother and he was playing peekaboo in the window. So he'd open the curtain and stick his face on, you know, at the window and then he'd pull it back real quick. And, um, and I'm, wondering what's going on behind me because of course I'm not the, the crowd is facing there and I, I get these chuckles and I'm like I haven't said anything funny yet so um, <laughs> I was wondering what was going on and I turn around and there's this little guy you know standing and waving and I was like that's not Emma that's not her <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so, so you, while you're facing your audience he's actually putting on a little show for him <laughs> yeah much more entertaining than I am I guess because they were paying more attention to that one so well, one of my favorite stories from the tour was the one where they discovered that woman's body in the garden. Uh, can you tell us oh, a little the bit Man- about that? Myra, that Myra Penfield story, yeah. Um, that's one of my favorites, too. I usually tell that toward the end of the tour because I like, you know, by then it's dark, and I like to get everybody just a little creeped out before I take them back. So It's, um, it's very creepy. It's a good one. Um, there was a, a house built, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's considered in Hate Village proper, um, downtown. It's one of the, the old old historic um, uh, sections of our town, there were two, actually there were kind of two Rockfords that start one side of the river, then the other side of the river, and this is on the east side of the river when it, the first settlement. And um, 
there was a big mansion there. And the mansion, before it was bought by the couple I'm going to talk about, had already had a history, a bad history. Um, there was a fire. The original owners had a fire in the house, and two of their children were killed, and a servant who had gone back in to try to save the children they were consumed by the fire. And um, then it sold to a man who was an undertaker in town. And he, he had a, a, a wife he was adored. Unfortunately, she liked to uh, get in her cups, as they say. And she mm-hmm. was a heavy drinker and a apparently couldn't walk down the stairs very well, and she fell down and broke her neck. And he was so um, torn up by this, he actually hung himself in the big garden. They had a big maple tree in the garden, and uh, he hung himself from there. So oh, that, the house That's a had, part of the story that I, I didn't know about. I, um, you know, sometimes I can dig farther and find out new little details so I can throw them in there. Well, half of Mike's so, stories always got a hanging in them, too. That's kind of a running <laughs> joke on the show. A lot of his top ten lists, everyone seems to hang themselves. Right. Well, that's um, a very dramatic way to go. Yes. It is. Anyway, um, story starts where this uh, this man um, owned a jewelry store in town, and he decided it was time for his son to get married. And he was from um, England, and so he decided he wanted to bring a girl, have his have his son marry this English girl. So they part across the water, and, and they find this, this young lady. Her name is Mara, and uh, she's about 17 at this time. And they decide, her family decides that, you know, they don't want her that far away, but this sounds like a good match. She owns a jewelry store, so he's probably going to be well-to-do. They've got a beautiful man and they're moving in. So they send their daughter off, you know, hoping the best and, and expecting her to have a wonderful life. She gets over here, and at first it goes well. She had a beautiful mansion, great garden. Um, things go well between her and uh, Mr. Penfield Llewellyn Jr. And um, he, uh, so he, they're, they're happy in their wedding bliss there. But his father has to move in, uh, Penfield Sr., and um, he is uh, likes to drink a lot. And um, after a while, Junior starts joining him in the drinking. And for some reason, Myra gets on his nerves. And so he doesn't like her. And so he starts, you know, just really not being nice to her. He treats her disrespectfully and he says mean things to her and kind of verbally abuses her. And before long, the son is joining in on this because he's starting to see Myra through his dad's eyes and it's it's not a good thing. And she's young. She doesn't know anybody here. She's made some friends in the neighborhood, but she spends a lot of time alone in the garden to try to get away from what's going on in the house. And um, neighbors started noticing spending time with her gardener a little bit more. He's a young man. And so then they think that there's this romance that's growing between the two of them. And they start talking, and, and it gets back to Penfield Sr., and he doesn't like that at all, of course. So he, um, the neighbors watch this develop between Mara and the gardener, and they start saying that Mara's going to run away with him. And uh, for long, lo and behold, Mara's gone. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking that she's gone off somewhere and is living a life with somebody who really loves her and cares for her. So the years pass, and they notice Llewellyn Jr. starts to go a little mad, and uh, they have to put him away in a sanitarium. And the father sells the house and he moves back to England and just kind of desert uh, Llewellyn Jr. here in Rockford and he's left to die in the sanitarium all alone. Sixty years pass and they're remodeling on, on the, uh, they've fallen into a state of disrepair basically and they're cleaning up the garden and they take the old maple tree that was like the center point of this garden, they take it out and when they pull it up they find this old oriental rug that had been wrapped around a body and they open it up and here's this woman's body in this black at a gown, they had no arms or legs. They wow. do find her her arms somewhere, but they don't find her legs ever. It's obvious that she had been stabbed. And so then now they have to change their, their version of the story, and, and obviously Mara didn't go anywhere and um, couldn't really do anything to get 
the poor girl justice because Llewellyn Jr. had died in an insane asylum and nobody had seen Senior in years. So they do what they can for her and they ship her back home to her family. Um, after oh. that happens, the house uh, is divided up into apartment houses and um, they uh, um, one lady has a wonderful bar in her apartment and she is off on a Sunday and she comes home and all of the bottles are broken in her bar and this beautiful mirror that she had above her bar was smashed to pieces and nobody had broken in. The doors were broken in. Nothing else had been touched, just this bar. Um, she kind of feels a little creeped out, so she has a brother spend the night with her. And he's awakened in the middle of the night by a strange sound coming from out in the hallway. So he gets up out of bed and he goes to the doorway and he opens the door and there in the darkness on the ground he sees something crawling toward and he doesn't know what it is and he doesn't scream and I'm not sure why he does this but he turns around he runs back in the bed and he covers up his head with the blanket. <laughs> there you <laughs> That's go. That's how they would run out the door. So as he gets in bed then he can hear this thing enter his room and it, he can hear it pulling itself across the wooden floor with its fingernails. He can hear the fingernails on the wood. He can hear, hear it getting closer and closer to his bed and then he feels its hands on the bed as it pulls itself up on the bed feels it touching his body as it comes up toward him and then he hears this noise and he actually and this I will give him credit for he pulls the blanket down to see where it is and he can hear this woman's voice in his ear start to whisper and then he finally screams and when he screams the sister comes running in the bed and flips on the light and there is nothing in the room at all wow that's and, a that's it's always a, a chilling story. That's actually story. a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it really it creeps me out every time I hear it. It sounds like what one of those ghost adventurers would do. You know, they <laughs> see a ghost and they run screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and run out the door. Supposedly now, they, after they look back and they had found out that, you know, this was probably the ghost of Mara and she's still out trying to get justice for this untimely, her untimely death. And, and it's it's even worse because it's true. It's based on something that actually happened. Actually happened. That's correct. And um, you have to wonder if she didn't have something to do with Llewellyn Jr. going insane because the story is that it was probably the father who killed her and the son came in on it and mm -hmm. saw and had to help him clean up the mess and bury her in the, the garden and stuff. So I wonder if that just drove him a little. He just wasn't strong enough mentally to so handle that, all that. That would do it. Come in well, like now, that would... yeah, You come in like, Dad, what did you do? <laughs> well, if, if that wasn't bad enough, now there's a park over the uh, where the house used to be, right? So kids Correct. are playing where they discovered this body. That's right. And they still see this woman dressed in this black taffeta gown walking, especially in March because that was the year she was a uh, dead time of the year she was supposedly killed. And um, people in the neighborhood um, say that they can still see her walking around and the kids tell their parents, I saw that lady. They never found her so. legs, though. Is that what you said? That's right. They never found her legs. So a better story would be people saw legs walking. <laughs> <laughs> just legs. <laughs> I'll have to revise that. Thank you. There you go. I'm, I'm just trying to put a little more zip into your tour for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually it's October, so, you know, it's windy, it's you know, chilly, everybody's huddled around listening to the story, so it doesn't really need much zip at that point. They just want to get back on the bus so they don't see anything. Your tours sound yeah. like they're a good time. Do you generally just look at these old buildings, or are there ones you actually get to go inside, too? The, the private residences, people are usually a little, you know, hinky about us going in, but I get us into uh, as many places as I possibly can. That's one thing I try to do, and if it isn't, you know, I'll get us into a commercial place. They usually are more, a little bit more, you know, that's kind of cool, you know, bring your, your group. And it's hard, too, because I have such a big group. Um, you know, it's not like most people have room for 60 people yeah, in their house. Some people so. get just a little bit touchy when you bring 60 people into their home. <laughs> 
Well, what, what we need is a haunted Rockford pub crawl. Yeah. Yo, I'm working that? on that. I am working on that. Mike will do um, that. Anything with well, the word me pub in it. <laughs> sign you up for that, Mike? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike was doing a haunted pub crawl last night, I heard. Right. <laughs> Our listeners um, don't I was actually know thinking that. of doing something like that and maybe, you know, stationing a couple of people because there's some really nice places downtown. And now that I'm going to start doing walking tours down there, I thought I could probably make some friends with, you know, well, maybe I'll take you with me. You they probably already know you. So um, <laughs> some of the bars downtown and, um, you know, have like little stops where we go in and have a drink and maybe somebody could tell, you know, like you could tell a story there or uh, one of our other authors, local authors could tell a story. We could have that oh, going on idea. too. So. That actually sounds yeah, pretty cool. You. How about you yourself, Kathy? Have you had any, you know, a paranormal experiences? Funny you should ask that. Yes, I have. And I, I try, I mean, I tell this story and um, it still gives me the goosebumps. We, uh, I am not from Rockford originally. I um, met a man, we got married and um, he was from Rockford and we bought a house in his neighborhood just a few blocks down from his dad because his dad was getting on and we had four small children. Um, my baby was a year old when we moved into the house. So I had four kids under the age of five and uh, we bought this old farmhouse and um, I loved it. I was fixing it up and uh, um, weird things would happen, just little things. But, you know, you got four kids and busy and not really paying attention. So maybe, you know, the baby moved something, you know, because we try to find things and you put something down and of course it would not be there when you went back to it. So we just blamed that on the kids a lot. Um, There was times that we had weird feelings in the house, you know, like um, you walk into a room and it's, you get the heebie-jeebies and it's like, and I hated, I hated shutting the lights off at night and going up the stairs because I always felt like there was somebody watching and, but you know, I read ghost stories, so I figured it was just my imagination working overtime. But we had an incident happen when, um, we had probably been in the house about a year, and uh, my daughters shared a bedroom in the front part of the house. There were four bedrooms on the second floor of the house, and so my my two little girls shared the, the front bedroom. And I had given the youngest one a bottle. She was about a year old, like I said, and her name was Erin. She spelled the A-R-Y-N, um, or I spell it that way for her. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I gave her a, well, it's the way we spelled it. She, anyway, she's I had the given artist her a bottle. of the family, right? Pardon? She's the artist of the family, right? She is. She's my photographer. Yeah, that's right. Um, this probably scarred her for life and made her creative. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I had given her a bottle to put her down to bed, and um, it was probably half an hour later. She started screaming, so I go running up the stairs, and I'm like, what's going on? And her bottle was gone. And, I mean... When I say gone, it was nowhere in the room. I checked in the, she was in a crib at the time. So I checked the crib. I, I checked the other daughter's bed thinking maybe she threw it at her, you know, who knows. So I, I checked everything and the bottle was not to be found. So I went downstairs and made her another bottle and I gave it to her and I just didn't think anything of it. And, you know, the years progressed and, and the kids never liked that room. I would come upstairs, you know, we'd put them to bed and then we'd go downstairs and we'd come upstairs and they would be like in the hallway you know, my kids were really great about going to bed when it was time to go to bed. We didn't have any of that, I need a glass of water. Thing. They, they usually, you know, went to bed. I know what you're probably thinking. You should probably beat them every day. So they exhausted. <laughs> 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 but um, so they would, they would like pull their blankets and sleep right past the threshold. It was really weird. So uh, they didn't like that room. Lo and behold, five years later, we're tearing down that room because it was an old farmhouse and it needed to be rewired. And, and um, when I say it was old, it was built at the, like the turn of the century. It still had the gas nipple sticking out of the wall. And um, so we decided we needed to, we'd start with that bedroom. Um, 
and do that one first. So we start tearing down. I had the old plaster and the lath boards, and we took all that down. And I'm tearing the wall down. We're, you know, we're hammering it, and we're pulling down the, the lath boards and stuff. And behind the plaster, behind the lath board, like in the mix of this, this blown-in insulation, it was like newspapery stuff um, that had settled at the bottom, was Erin's bottle. Huh. Still no, had her name to, on the side. <laughs> try to explain the that one. Was, pardon? I said try to explain that one away. Yeah, I'm stood there, and I'm holding this thing, and I'm like, what in the world? And I, I cannot to this day figure out how it would have got behind the wall. That's incredible. But that was a pretty good indication that we had something going on in there. Yeah. And, <laughs> something you couldn't ignore. And I had talked to the neighbors. I mean, we had made uh, friends with the neighbors. We had an elderly lady across the street that had been in the neighborhood since the 20s, and um, her sister had actually gotten married in the, the yard of that house. It had a beautiful rose garden. And um, the gentleman on the other side of the house had told me that, that somebody had died in the house. In fact, he told me a lot of people had died in the house because they'd get sick with cancer and they'd come home and they would die in the house. And there was like three people prior to my living there that had passed away. And um, he told me that somebody had actually been killed in my house. After that event, I started talking to him, you know, did anything go on in my house? He said that uh, it happened in 1958. And he thought it happened in the summertime. So I looked, I went down to the newspaper, and I was just going to start researching my house. So I found out who lived in my house from the time it was built. And in the 50s, a family named Hull had owned it. Um, So I couldn't find anything in the summer. So I thought, well, I'll just start at the beginning of the year. So I'm looking through, and this is this is months of research, you know, because I've got all these kids. I can't just hang out at the library. So it took a while, but I came across um, January 17th. I flip over the little thing, and there on the front page of the newspaper is my house. And that gave me goosebumps, big time. Murder, suicide. A gentleman, had his wife had left him and was staying there with her sister, and he broke in on a Saturday morning and shot her in the living room. She ran up the stairs, and he finished her off in that front bedroom wow. where the girls went. Wow. Well, that's creepy. Maybe that's a good uh, lesson here for people buying homes. Do your research before you purchase your new home. Prior to the purchase. Right. Do they, have they said anything to you? Do they remember anything happening in the house? They don't really remember. We really tried to hide a lot from them. And this was a real traumatic time for our family, too. I was the same age as the woman that was killed when um, my husband, her husband was an alcoholic and so was mine. And um, this was our, our bad time. This was a, uh, I'm not sure if us being in that same situation amplified it or their situation amplified our situation. I'm not sure how that all worked. It, it could be I that. Know. I've actually heard that before. The negative energies in a home like that will actually cause marital problems. Yeah. So it was, it was a real, so they know that part because we, I had them in therapy and um, stuff. And uh, so I got almost obsessed with what had happened. He killed himself there too. So they both died in that house. And she left a six-year-old and a four-year-old, which would have been right around the same age as my children. I actually got so obsessed with it. I called, I, I read the article and I called the funeral home and I talked to the gentleman who worked on her and he said it shook him up because she was so young. She was 28 and uh, had these children and her mom took the kids and they sent his body to Arizona, I think. And uh, I went to visit her grave and everything. It just really, really struck home with me. And I, I don't know if it made my situation all that more real. I couldn't say, well, you know, it won't end badly because I had the perfect example right in front of me. So right. um, it really made me uh, have to wake up and, and take stock of that situation. And uh, so he became a recovering alcoholic after that. So it was 
was a good thing. I mean, ours ended differently, obviously. So. Yeah. yeah you're well, alive still. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any upcoming events? I do. Um, we have an event. It's kind of a, a different Valentine's Day kind of thing. We have a dinner and ghost stories instead of dinner and a movie. You can come hear ghost stories. It'll be at the Camp Grant Room Museum. Have you been there with me, Michael? I have not, actually. That's one place I've heard a lot about, but I've never been up there. You have to come out. And and that is uh, Valentine's weekend on the February 11th, and it's going to be 7 p.m. And you, she's going to make us a full dinner. She, you can choose between a full pork loin dinner with all the dressing and trimming and stuff, or vegetable lasagna, and uh, that goes from 7 until 9, and yeah, she's a great cook, she's a great dessert, and it's a great, interesting place. Um, that Camp Grant was during World War One and World War Two. has a lot of history. During World War One, it was an induction site, and uh, they got trained there, and during September of 1918, of course, the Spanish influenza hit the whole world, the epidemic hit the world, um, 20,000 people died in Rockford, and 2,000 men died within a 24-day period um, during that, yes. And it was such a traumatic event. The colonel, who was the colonel, he had only been colonel a month when this hit. He couldn't do anything to stop this. And he, I mean, they would get feeling not so great in the morning, and they would be dead by night. It was such a horrible uh, disease. Wow. He and committing suicide. The colonel committed suicide there. Wow, that's so, incredible. Um, yeah, and um, during World War II, it was used again as an induction site, but it was also used for German POW. So in, a in lot Rockford. of in German in POW. Rockford. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, and um, they would be they would use them to work in the fields, and they would pay them a wage, and they they actually lived better than I mean, obviously our than our um, soldiers over in Germany, but the German um, the German soldiers here were treated better than their families back in Germany. Oh, that's so pretty it was, cool. It was Learn pretty something new every day. Right. So um, Yolanda uh, and her husband Stanley have done a wonderful job. It, it just They were just going to open a restaurant, and then they started having people bring them just memorabilia from Camp Grant because it is one of the last buildings of Camp Grant. Um, so they've turned it into the compa- uh, command post restaurant and museum, and it's a fascinating place. All the memorabilia there has been donated by family members of the gentleman or the gentleman themselves that served there, the women that served there as nurses, the people who worked there. So it's a fascinating place. She actually has a great story she tells about a guy who, because Atwood Park, which is connected not too far from there, was part of where they did the live rounds and shelling and stuff. She actually had a, a gentleman bring her like a life bomb. <laughs> he picked it up in the park and he brought it into the command post and said, do you oh, want wow. this? And she said, no, you need to take that to the police department. <laughs> yeah, really. A live bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that in here. So that's crazy. Well, yeah, it was. Cra- I, I can't. But when she told me that story, I was like, "You're seriously? You had that happen?" And she's like, "Yep, I had that happen." Did the guy realize it was actually still alive? I don't think so, because I mean, it, there's signs all over that park when you take a, you know, when you hike in the park, you can go hiking, and when you go there, it says, "Do not pick up anything. Just let us know what you see." Apparently, he didn't follow the signs, and he picked it up and brought it in. Well, I've never heard of that before. I've never been to a park where, you know, it says, please do not pick up live bombs. <laughs> I know. I, when I uh, went there, it was uh, it was really snowy, but I was, like, you know, trotting along, and I, I look up, and I'm like, okay, what what's that sign about? And uh, my boyfriend at the t- uh, um, was with me, and he's just like... Um, yeah, this is where they did the, you know, they would practice with the, the ammunition and, and like, nice, very what, nice. What better place to put a park? My gosh, <laughs> naturally. Yeah. I know. It's 
like, you know, yeah, this is where they find bodies. So let's put that park there. And Rockford's really great for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't put a preschool there. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, right. Get, getting us back to the paranormal. <laughs> sorry, you, sorry. But I are you still doing that. the tours associated with the library, or now have you gone independent? I'm kind of doing both. Um, we'll still do the, the tours through the library in the fall, uh, so I'll still do that during the, you know, Halloween time. But uh, I want I wanted to go year-round, and uh, so I, I went uh, independent in October, and um, it just allowed me to offer a better variety for the people because I have people that give me suggestions all the time like oh wouldn't it be neat to do this so I have a psychic Mark Dorset that I work with he's been wonderful and he gives his uh, impressions he also does what they call live gallery readings and we have um, one of those scheduled for March um, 24th and that's basically where you'll come in and he, he can um, connect with the people your own personal loved ones who've passed on, who might have a message for you, even if it's just to say hi. And he can tell you, um, you know, if they if they come through. He can't guarantee that they'll come through, but sometimes they're brave and they step up and they have a message for you, and he can pass that along for you. So we'll be doing that at the Veterans Memorial Hall in, on March 24th in the evening. That's pretty cool. Do you have a website, or what would be the information if somebody wants to go on one of your tours? I do have a website. It's um, www.hauntedrockford.com. I just made it as easy as I could. And you can email me at kathy at hauntedrockford.com, and it's K-A-T-H-I. Well, that was Excellent. actually great. Do you have any other questions, Mike? Uh, no, I think that's it for me, uh, Kathy. Thank you very much for coming on with us again, and uh, I love hearing your stories, and I look forward to talking with you soon. Okay, well, I hope you join us on some of our events, and you too, John. If you uh, ever get a chance to come to Rockford or would just like to come, let me know, and we'll have you come as a special guest. I think I'll take you up on that someday because it does sound like a good time. And like I say, I've, I've lived in you Illinois say, my whole life. with and every I, guest we I've have. never been there because I actually do want to do all these things. I, I can't always do them, but I actually do. Well, you're going to have to get that Winnebago and just drive from one to the other. Yeah, but I heard they use gas, too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Kathy. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And um, you guys have a great day, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Mike. You too. You too. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kathy. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. With us right now on the phone is Michael Clean. How are you doing today, Mike? 
Hey, John, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on once again. It's always a pleasure to be here. No problem. A little bit different today. We're just going to talk about a couple uh, current events, things that are going on in the paranormal world, like, uh, well, that UFO they found in the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Have you heard about that one? Yeah, I, I saw the CNN report on it. It was very interesting, although I think it might be too early to jump to conclusions about it. Oh, yeah, it's not necessarily UFO, but it's a, you know, round cylinder thing on the bottom of the Baltic Sea which, you know, is rather intriguing. Oh, yeah. Well, somebody said that it could have been a sunken ship, but I don't know of any ships a that round were ship? perfectly round. Yeah. No, you didn't see a lot of those. Most Vikings didn't fly or sail around in Frisbees. <laughs> right. You know, and it's interesting. It, it is kind of shaped like the Millennium Falcon, if you look at oh, it. Oh, I know. I saw it. Did you see some of the posts on that? That It, it does look just like it, actually. Yeah, well... I guess when they uh, when the weather warms up, they're going to get closer to it, and, and I'll be really curious as to what they find. Yeah, I think it's an intriguing story. It's not one of those crackpot ones. I mean, it's a legitimate find. They don't know what it is yet, but the theories are already out there. But it is unusual, a round-shaped object, a bottom of the sea. <laughs> I was surprised at how many shipwrecks there were in the Baltic. What did they say? There was several thousand of them? Yeah, and... did you hear, too, because of the, the way the water conditions are there, too, that shipwrecks come up? actually in flawless shape yeah they found a bunch of uh, wine that was like a hundred years old i wonder what that tastes like uh, probably crappy like most wine <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not a big wine drinker so well it's supposed to be better with age yeah 100 years or so on the bottom of the sea it probably yeah. would have been good right when you pulled it up because chilled from the bottom of the ocean <laughs> yeah that's true you know, I I used to, when I was younger, uh, my dad and I would explore the forest preserve in Des Plaines. Looking for sunken ships? Well, you know, during drought, the the water level in the river would go down significantly, and we would find all kinds of weird things. We found a wagon wheel once, uh, and it's. I always wondered what would happen if the ocean just drained. And, what you know, we could go and look in what was at the bottom. That would be really interesting. Well, the drought this year, did you hear all the stuff they found in Texas because of that extreme drought? Oh, yeah. Well, they found that cemetery. That would have been fascinating. And they found uh, part of the space shuttle, too, one of the... that some sort of big round ball. I don't know what it was. It actually was part of the space shuttle that it had fallen in a lake and they never found it till then. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I did actually hear about some round metal balls that have been found around the world and they didn't really know you know what i, I the think this was a different one i don't think it was that one i don't think oh. i just recall i saw pictures of it and they found it in the bottom but they said this is from the space shuttle yeah that's really cool if they drained the oceans all of a sudden uh who knows what you'd find that'd be kind of you'd find a lot of dead fish <laughs> yeah well of course <laughs> But actually, I think, uh, what is that lake in Russia where it's it's totally being depleted and the shorelines retreated literally miles from where it was about 50 years ago? Oh, no, I'm not aware of that. You mean it's natural causes? I mean, they're pulling out for like drinking water, you mean, or it's just evaporating or something? I think it might be that the Caspian Sea, actually, where they, they've been draining the water to fertilize that area for farming and stuff. And there's just whole fishing villages and boats just laying in the middle of what looks like the desert because the water's retreated so much. Well, that's what, you know, the Russians really screwed up their environment over there during the Soviet Union. Well, Chernobyl didn't help much either. No. Oh, that's interesting, too, if you want to talk about abandoned things. I don't know if you've ever seen those photo tours. People... You, apparently it's safe to go in there for a short amount of time. Yeah, so they say. I mean, I've seen that too, and I've watched that, but 
I'm not going to go in there. I mean, the Geiger <laughs> counters are still clicking. Yeah. You know, a low level of radiation can be good for you. Oh, yeah. Now you sound like the skeptics for sure. Like at what, <laughs> Fukushima, they're saying, oh, it's not bad. Yeah, you know, it's a nice uh, radiated bath. Now, who is that? It, there uh, was cleans someone, out everything. There was some lady. I forgot who she was. Some famous talk show lady or something that said radiation was good for you. Well, <laughs> in, in very small doses, I think. Well, if you have, maybe if you have cancer or something, but I, <laughs> I don't think normal people should be radiated. Yeah, well, I mean, there's uh, there's a safe level that people can, can ingest. Yeah, I think I'll steer clear of that myself, but feel free. <laughs> well, at any rate, I mean, that is an interesting area for ghost towns and things like that because everything was just abandoned and left as it was at the time of the accident. And everything's the same. It's just creepy looking. I mean, you know, there's children's books and toys. Everything is exactly how it was when they took off. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hey, speaking of creepy sounds, have you heard oh, about all these bizarre sounds? They almost sound like the whale from uh, <laughs> the Star Trek. What, what movie was that when they were trying to find the whale on Earth? It sounds like that. It's throughout the world. I mean, it's even happened in Chicago, but it's in, in Germany and Canada and Russia, that bizarre resonating sound. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I've, I've seen some of the videos. Uh, some people have been posting it online. And my first instinct was that it was some kind of hoax or a, um, you know, a film promotion that uh -huh. was going on. It's a worldwide hoax. They're spending quite a bit of money on it. <laughs> well, anybody can put a video on YouTube and say they're in Germany. I mean, oh, no, you know you, they no. Are. the YouTube police check that stuff. Don't you know that? <laughs> Everything is verified. Anything you see on the internet or read is always true. <laughs> yeah, I've, that's interesting. I mean, the, the earth does give off different sounds. I, I have a book on unusual natural phenomenon, and it talks about that, uh, weird noises and things like the wind going through a knot in a tree, you know, can make a, a strange noise, like a right. whistling sound and things like that. But it would be strange to hear the exact sound same sound in different parts well, of the world. Well, that's what they're hearing. It's pretty well the same everywhere. Interesting one. I just saw one that was in uh, Germany. I don't remember the town, but somebody was filming it, and it was such a low resonant noise that all the car alarms are going off in the neighborhood. Huh. Now, see, that's something that would be awfully hard to fake. Okay, say you're outside faking the noise. How in heaven's name do you get every car alarm in the neighborhood to go off? You know, that puts a little credibility to it. Uh, and go around and hit them with a baseball bat? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, realistically, I don't know. I don't think that this is fake. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's like an alien invasion. I think it's... Well, what are some of the explanations of the origin of it? I actually don't know. My explanation, I actually think it's something to do with the pole shift because it's a scientific fact. The poles are shifting. We all know about that. And mm -hmm. perhaps the Earth is shifting or warping or changing a bit with the pull of the gravity field. So, you know, maybe it's groaning from that. Yeah, it could be. It could be. But otherwise, I have no ideas. I haven't read. I'm sure there's all kinds of uh, explanations out there. I'm sure it's the aliens or it's probably Harper. I don't know. Maybe it was President Obama when he was on Mars or something. There's so many weird ones out there. Do you do you remember the details of that story? Because I vaguely remember hearing something about President Obama being on Mars, and I thought, what what in the heck? And I don't know what the details of that were. I don't know all the details either, but it's something about uh, Project Camelot, possibly. It was a time travel program back, I don't even remember when, and <laughs> supposedly people go to Mars. We have a colony on Mars, and a young Obama was 
was there too at one time and met everybody and was bragging that he was going to be president because they, they knew their future because they could time travel. So that's all I actually know about that. The next thing we're going to hear is that he was actually born on Mars. Well, I think he and was that's actually. That's why he can't really produce the birth certificate because those Martian ones are a bitch to get. <laughs> yeah. And those, uh, those conspiracy theories sometimes can get real real wacky. Well, some conspiracy theories, they pan out. I'm not saying those are all wrong. A lot of them actually come out to be true, but some of them are just so wacky. And then again, you got to take it with a grain of salt. The strangest, weirdest one out there could end up to be true. You just never know because you don't have facts either way, actually. So you, you got to keep an open mind is how I look at it. Yeah. Well, some of these things I know in history have such strange origins and most people just forget about it. And so when you come back years later and you say, well, this is how this came about everyone's like oh no that's crazy like that uh, fluoride for instance and that the expert that you interviewed yeah that's uh, actually on, well it's actually in this week's show actually well a fluoride is you know they can say it's a conspiracy theory but in fact it's not the fluoride is an actual real thing scientifically proven and there's no conspiracy to it whatsoever except for the fact they're trying to cover it up yeah well I mean whenever you see a stereotype in a movie or anything of somebody a conspiracy theorist they're always go back Back to that, the the water fluoridation. Right. Well, part of it, when I talked to, uh, what was his name, Daniel Stockman, I believe. I might have got that wrong. He's actually on today's show, too. I was talking to him about that, and everything I heard about fluoride was true. The only thing he told me that they can't prove is the where people say that uh, Nazi Germany's used to put it in the concentration camp to uh, make uh, prisoners docile. He told mm-hmm. me that there's no scientific proof for that. People have talked about it, and they think that's what happened, but there is no proof. So being a scientist, they won't touch that because they only talk about things that can be proven. Yeah. Well, I think that there's generally in conspiracy theories, there's either a sense of that the government is very, very uh, sinister and capable. But then there's also in conspiracy theories, the flip side where the government is just sort of bumbling and it doesn't know what it's doing. So in the fluoride situation, you could either say, well, it was done deliberately to dumb down the U.S. population or whatever, make us docile. But then on the other hand, you could say, well, maybe it was just one man who wanted to make money off of this and just convinced people who were too dumb to understand the consequences. Well, basically, to, to it happened it. a long time ago. You have to listen to this interview. Actually, like I say, it's going to be on the same show we're talking about right now. It, it used to be a, uh, a toxic waste. It was actually collected out of the, the scrubbers and the smokestacks out of factories. And then uh, they decided to put it into the public water because it was too hard to get rid of the toxic waste. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody knew somebody at one time and they've been doing it for so long well recently they found out that it actually is bad for you but what he says in this interview is it to the point now they're afraid to say anything because they're afraid everybody is going to lose faith in the entire government and all your doctors and everything because for all your whole life they've been saying oh fluoride's great fluoride and in fact they found out it's terrible for you if you look at things like uh, Gerber products like uh, starter toothpaste or something like that yeah it says right on it in bold print contains no fluoride right they yeah, actually because it's horrible for children. Right. And they have Gerber water, one gallon water. And they, you're supposed to use that for the formula for your kids. And it says right on it, no fluoride safe for children. Well, yeah. what's that telling you right there? You know, yeah. That, that's admitting it's bad. And and for uh, people on dialysis and uh, who have kidney disease and uh, problems like that, it's terrible for them. Well, I, I think that it says a lot. You know, a lot of our parents, they remember growing up as kids, they would just drink right out of the tap water and they didn't think anything of it. But now, I mean... How many people do you know that actually drink 
tap water. I avoid it like it's radiated. I never. Yeah, most I people don't nowadays. Uh, but I actually asked him in the interview uh, what people can do if they don't want fluoride, which you shouldn't have. And he said you can actually use a reverse osmosis filter, which you take out part of it. But actually, the, a distiller or a reverse osmosis. The distiller takes out 100% of the fluoride. The reverse osmosis, I think he said, takes out about 70%. So for people, especially if you don't have money and you can't afford all this bottled water, that's what you should do if you can afford that. But then again, for the middle class and below, which is most of America nowadays, we can't afford anything. So we're forced to just drink this crap. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I won't drink water without fil- filtering it or if- well, You won't drink water without water. alcohol in it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Well, the thing hey, is that's... too, what you don't realize, something else here, Mike, is uh, the beer you drink, it's made with fluorinated water. The bread you buy, it contains fluorinated water. All our products in the factories use fluorinated water. So you're getting it from everywhere and people don't even realize it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But, you know, back in the old days, people never drank water. They would drink uh, tea or, or alcohol because that's that was the safest thing to drink. In the medieval days, everybody drank alcohol. They didn't have water at all. It wasn't safe, so they all drank alcohol. Well, I, w- I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a, a teetotaler, and he was saying how uh, his reasons were religious, and he was saying how, well, God didn't make things like alcohol. He didn't put them on well, this earth, they have so wine? they must be bad. They had oh, wine they had... back then. Jesus drank wine. Oh, alcohol was one of the first things that we ever came up with. I mean, it's as old as, as man itself. It's one of the oldest man-made substances in the, in the world. Well, we got, a, we got kind of off track there from the paranormal for a little bit. Oh, oh, he just talked about alcohol with Mike, and he just starts to wander. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's about it on that. We kind of got off subject there. Once we started getting an alcohol, that that took over it. So Yeah. uh, Well, I I think that there is a relationship many times between alcohol and the paranormal. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I'm not not even going to go there, but yeah, I think a lot of groups might have that problem. <laughs> so uh, what do you got going on, Mike? How about any top 10 list? You haven't done any of your top 10 lists for quite a while, and those have always been a hit. Uh, have you run out of subjects? Yeah, well, no, actually, I just haven't planned any any brand new ones. But there are a couple of ones, I think, that are, are very entertaining that we could talk about. Uh, for instance, we've got the top 10 most haunted colleges in Illinois, uh, the top 10 most mysterious creatures. Well, that, that's, that's one an that we interesting haven't done one. in a while. You've never done anything like that one, have you? No, I don't. I don't think so. There you go. That's a good one. Okay, so we'll do the uh, top ten most mysterious creatures in Illinois. Now, these top ten lists, of course, can be found on TrueIllinoisHaunts.com. That's my website where I publish the legends and lore of Illinois. Do interviews, top ten lists, all that that good stuff. So. We know that there are a lot of ghosts in Illinois, right? A lot of strange places, but there are also a lot of mysterious creatures. And some of these are pretty famous and some of these aren't. So let's go down the list and see if there's any ones that you can uh, What was that one you had you before? The Was it the purple-eyed, one-eyed, pink peg leg? <laughs> what was that thing? That is, that is the Enfield Horror. And uh, not to spoil the list, but that is one of the top uh, top mysterious creatures. Wasn't that one-eyed, peg-legged or something <laughs> weird like that? <laughs> well, we'll find out. <laughs> okay. So let's start at the top here at number 10. Uh, this is the Gooseville Bear outside of Bethalto, Illinois. Now, the Gooseville Bear was a creature known only by what it left behind. For nearly three decades, from about 1940 to the late 1960s, residents of the Gooseville area uh, discovered large animal tracks along Indian Creek. 
The tracks resemble those of a bear, although no bears are known to live in the area, of course, being Illinois. Uh, so no witnesses ever came forward claiming to have seen the beast. And after many years, this Gooseville bear vanished as mysteriously as it appeared. Now, number nine would be Black Panthers. This is seen throughout Illinois. Uh, there's a lot of interesting sightings of this particular creature. I've seen those now, posts on Facebook before, too, where people are talking about those. Oh, yeah. Well, normal panthers are seen around the state, but black ones, they're not sure whether those even exist. Now, a panther is a popular name given to the North American cougar, and this was once prevalent all over the continent, but was hunted virtually to extinction out in the eastern half of the United States. But it's made a comeback recently. In 2008, a cougar was shot and killed near the Chicago River in Chicago, uh, over by Roscoe Village. Maybe you remember that. They're, although they have seen uh, crocodiles in the Chicago River. Crocodiles? Yeah, they they fished some out. Uh, I believe it was a couple of summers ago. Oh, probably someone just threw it out. It was a pet or something, because those couldn't survive right. our winters. Yeah, no. Uh, now, see, the this most mysterious sightings of these is the Black Panther. This is a genetic anomaly, and uh, no black cougars have ever been captured or photographed in the wild. When most people say a Black Panther, it's actually a jaguar or a leopard. Uh, so nevertheless, these have been spotted in Illinois. In 2001, a Black Panther was seen on three separate occasions in Monroe County. And as recently as 2007, a Black Panther was seen around Bloomington. Uh, now, are these mysterious animals a myth or real? And uh, we'll never really know for sure until one is captured or photographed in the wild. Number eight would be a giant snake that was seen in Champaign County, Illinois. This happened on June 6, 1896. There was a farmer named Carl Smithson, and he discovered this giant snake that he described as being about 18 feet in length in his barn. It was in the process of swallowing the leg of his Jersey cat. Uh -oh. Now, evidently, the snake, which had been spotted by several other farmers, uh, fled before this farmer could return with help. So he formed a posse, as was the style at the time. <laughs> snake to search. posse. Yeah. And they, they went out and searched for the creature, but uh, nobody has ever said whether they caught it or not. Hmm, I never heard of a giant snake here before. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of people don't know that during the settler days, there were a lot of snakes in Illinois, especially rattlesnakes. And today... I think of course, all I never, know of is gardener snakes is all I ever remember out here, actually. Yeah, and those are very rare. But during the, the settler days, they would dig up dens of rattlesnakes. It'd be hundreds of them. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> so number seven is the Stump Pond Serpent. This is in Pyramid State Park in Perry County. This is an interesting one because uh, it, this creature might have actually been captured. So between 1879 and 1968, this is over a 90-year period, fishermen in this county, they spun yarns about a serpent that dwelled in the murky waters of Stump Pond. The creature was described as having a thick green body with black fins. It was large enough to rock boat. Some fishermen encountered it more than once and speculated that there must be a breeding population. When the lake was partially drained in 1968, locals discovered catfish that weighed over 30 pounds. So it's possible that the stump pond serpent was a giant catfish. Now get this. This is a real event that happened in Alton uh, in the Mississippi River in 2005. There was a fisherman who caught a 124-pound blue catfish. Wow. So 
the stump pond serpent could have just been a very large catfish. Yeah, it's easy to confuse a catfish for a serpent. Yeah. Uh, number six is the Farmer City Monster. Now we're getting into things that are a little bit more unusual. And, of course, it's called this because of the town that it was seen near, Farmer City. Now, with its hulking shape and bright yellow eyes, the Farmer City Monster was one of the oddest creatures to lumber across Illinois in the summer of 1970. This beast was more credible than most, since eyewitnesses included the Farmer City police officer tasked with tracking it down. Sightings began in early July when three teens encountered it at their campsite in a field near Salt Creek, and these sightings spread to Bloomington, Hayworth, and Waynesville. Everyone who saw it noted its glowing eyes, but it apparently was not aggressive. Uh, at each encounter, the Farmer City monster fled as it had been spotted. It was last seen on August 16, 1970, when it ran across the road in front of a truck near Waynesville. It was last seen when it ran in front of a truck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't... They never found a body, so I don't think the truck... Did they hit. check the front of the truck? Uh, number five is an interesting one. This is the Thunderbirds. These are seen in various parts of Illinois. Now, it's difficult to believe that a species of giant birds could be living in the wilds of Illinois, but numerous eyewitnesses have attested to such a creature. At least one eyewitness, a man named Texas John Huffer, filmed a group of birds at Lake Shelbyville in 1977. He estimated that they possessed wingspans of at least 12 feet, which is much larger than the California condor, which is the largest bird in North America. Can you really believe somebody with the name Texas John? Well, he did catch it on film, uh, and I haven't seen the film, so apparently this can be verified. Okay, he caught it on... I didn't realize he had it on film. That's a different story. Yeah. Now, in 1948, locals around Alton, Illinois, reported seeing a bird that was, uh, quote, bigger than an airplane. And in 1977... Two birds uh, similarly described attacked a group of children in Lawndale. This was called the Lawndale Incident. And one of these children, uh, who is named Marlon Lowe, was carried about 35 feet before being dropped. Was this witnessed? I mean, it was yeah, just... it was witnessed by uh, many people in the town. Wow. So it's a very well-documented incident. Now, number four is the Coal Hollow Road Monster near Creve Coeur, Illinois, which is uh, kind of south of Peoria. Now, during the 1970s, the Illinois River Valley was abuzz with sightings of the Coal Hollow Road Monster, or Cohomo for short. It was first sighted along Coal Hollow Road just outside of Creve Corps. It was described as a three-toed beast, eight to ten feet tall, with a coat of thick white fur. There were so many sightings in the summer of 1972 that the Tazewell County Sheriff's Department organized a search party to hunt for the creature. Encounters with Cohomo tapered off after that, but one man believed he caught a glimpse of it in the headlights of his car in July 2000. Now, this next creature, it's interesting because the description of this one, the Murfreesboro Mud Monster and the Coal Hollow Road Monster and one of the other monsters on this list are very similar. It's sort of large. Imaginary uh, large... beast with alcohol involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, they're all described to be, uh, be large with like uh, white fur, but... There's an interesting postscript to this mud monster story, which I'll explain. This occurred near Murfreesboro, and th this happened in the wilds of southern Illinois, which is ripe with strange creature sightings. And this uh, this thing was called Big Muddy, or the Mud Monster. It's a, it was a hairy, smelly biped. It was seen several times in the summer of 1973. And 
Like uh, the Peoria's Cole Hollow Road monster, the Murfreesboro creature was described as being seven feet tall and covered in matted white fur. Police officers found several tracks at the scene and even heard an inhuman cry. Uh, the next night, after this hearing of this cry, there was a young boy and his two of his neighbors who saw the creature when it wandered through their backyards. Now, after a few weeks of intense scrutiny, this mud monster disappeared as mysteriously as it, as it arrived. This isn't that one that was proven to be fake, was it? Was yes. It, it is? Yes. This, okay. this is written about in the book History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois, the author actually knew the guy who perpetrated the oh, okay. hoax. So he brewed up this uh, concoction, this this mud monster juice or whatever that smelled really badly and got a costume and everything. And everyone thought this was a real creature. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your list there. <laughs> no, that's all right. You know, I I thought it was, uh, was a real creature too for a while. Now, number two is the Lake Michigan monster. I think this is really cool because you don't often hear about lake uh, monsters in Lake Michigan. No. But between 1867 and 1890, newspapers actually reported numerous encounters with the sea serpent just off the shore of Lake Michigan. Sightings ranged from Evanston down to Hyde Park, and the creature was described as bluish black with grayish white uh, underbelly, a long neck, and the head about the same size as a human. It was between 40 and 50 feet in length. So on a several occasions, it was heard bellowing. Uh, it was described as sounding like a bull. Never heard of and, that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of... It used to be famous, but recently it's it's kind of been forgotten about. And there was actually an encounter with this thing in 1867. There was a fisherman who encountered the Lake Michigan monster near uh, the shore of Chicago's south side. And he was able to provide a very detailed description, and he claimed that its head came within 20 feet of his boat. And again, did he describe this after he was just leaving the pub? Well, he'd been fishing for a while, so maybe he, the sun was getting to him. I don't know. I just tend to think there's alcohol involved with this entire list. <laughs> well, now the number one is something that we alluded to earlier on. This is the most strangest creature in the history of Illinois. So the number one most mysterious creature in Illinois is, of course, the Enfield Horror. In the spring of 1973, a bizarre and deformed creature terrorized the community of Enfield. Eyewitnesses described it as short, with arms like a T-Rex, broad, uh, it had pink eyes, grayish skin, and three legs. Now, on April 25th, 1973, it attacked a young boy who was playing in his yard, then attempted to break into a nearby home. The homeowner shot the monster, and it fled. <laughs> Our favorite uh, DJ, Rick Rainbow, <laughs> right. an Indiana resident and news director for WWKI Radio, he actually supposedly recorded the cries of this creature. Now, one common element in all the sightings was that they occurred near railroad tracks. But by the summer, uh, sightings stopped and the creature vanished. So a lot of these things, they seem to be seen over the course of a few weeks, creating quite a stir, and then they just disappear and no one ever hears from them again. Oh, that's weird. And that was the number one one, though, huh? Yes. Yeah, so, and there's plenty more sightings. Uh, there's a man by the name of Stan Courtney who actually has gone back 100 years through newspapers and found all kinds of sightings of a, a Bigfoot-like creature or um, what were called wild men. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, we've had Stan on here before, actually. He's our, our local Bigfoot expert. Oh, yeah. I, I encouraged him before to write a book about it because he's done so much research on it, and I think that there, there hasn't been a book on that subject, actually, Bigfoot in Illinois. 
So I think that'd be really worthwhile. Okay, Mike. Well, that was interesting. You got anything else for us? No, that's about it, uh, John. As always, thanks for having me on. I'm glad you have contributed to the show. No problem. And we'll talk to you again next week, I'm sure. Excellent. All right. That was Michael Clean. We hope you enjoyed the show today. We'll be back next week with a brand new Thresholds Radio. Remember, you can catch us on The Edge, 10 to 11 on theedgeonair.com. And if you can't make that, ufo-info.com, Sunday nights at 730. Don't miss us. We'll see you next week. Oh, wow.